Thank you. <laughs> Good evening. I'd like to call this to order the City Council meeting of February 6, 2024. Welcome back, everyone. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Our Deputy Mayor Arnold is joining us remotely. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by the telephone. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Tim Chisholm. Here. Councilmember Black. Here. Councilmember Sweet. Here. Councilmember Falcone. Here. Councilmember Pascal. Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Here. Mayor Curtis. Here. Thank you. Our study session tonight is three <clears throat> topics. The first is the Cascade Water Alliance Water Supply Negotiations Update. Second is Stores to Shores Greenway Project Update. Third is Decorative Pavement Markings Program Briefing. Um, we, respect, we expect to reconvene our regular meeting at 7.30 this evening. Uh, first, we'll do Cascade Water Alliance Water Supply Negotiations Update. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So here to give that update is our Interim Public Works Director, Truck Deaver. And I'd like to note that we have three complex topics. We're going to try to keep them to half an hour each, so I will be giving warnings when we get to close to the end of each one. So, um, But welcome, Truck. Good evening, uh, Mayor Curtis, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and members of the council. Uh, I am here today to talk to you about the city's future water supply, and I'm joined by George Dugdale, our financial planning manager, and uh, online virtually we also have Grant Raup, our senior financial analyst. Um, so as you all are probably aware, the city receives its water supply um, as a member of the Cascade Water Alliance. Um, and there have been some important negotiations taking place uh, regarding the future water supply. So what I'm going to do tonight is really to tee up this conversation. Um, and in March, on March 5th, you'll have a representative from Cascade Water Alliance, Chuck Clark, out here to answer more pointed questions and provide further details about uh, this particular negotiation. So the study session tonight, what we're hoping to do is to collect some initial feedback from the council um, regarding these negotiations and then transferring that feedback to Cascade Water Alliance um, to help them prepare for their presentation to you in March. Um, we'll go through just a quick overview of um, what CWA is, a little bit about the negotiation background, and then a high-level proposal review. So a little bit about... Uh, the, the Cascade Water Alliance, there are seven members. Um, you have Kirkland, Bellevue, Issaquah, Redmond, Tequila, Sammamish Plateau Water, as well as Skyway Water and Sewer District. Um, CWA is one of four large uh, uh, water suppliers uh, in this region. We pr CWA provides a reliable water supply to 380,000 um, residents and more than 20,000 businesses. And it was formed back in 1999 really to give its members a voice and a vote in um, these discussions about water supply into the future, uh, decades from now. Um, as many of you are aware, Councilmember Sweet is the board chair for CWA and Councilmember Pascal is the city's alternate representative. 
So a bit about what's going on and how we got to this point. CWA uh, currently purchases all of its water in blocks from Seattle Public Utilities. And by 2039, we anticipate that block to begin to decline under our current contract. Now, in, in anticipation of that, um, CWA and its members purchased the Lake Taps Reservoir down south um, as, a, as a strategy to plan for future water supplies. Um, now, with the development of Lake Taps, they anticipate this is going to take you know, roughly 20 years to develop. There's a lot of, of work that will go into it. They've got to do permitting. They've got to set up plans, um, get permits. And um, the cost is looking to be you know, more than $2 billion by the time it's all said and done because they've got to um, implement the, the treatment plant, uh, build the treatment plant, and all of the connector pipelines um, all the way down to Lake Taps. So given this timeline, uh, back in July of 2021, uh, CWA's board authorized staff to start negotiating and looking at a way to really bridge the demand um, between now and when they can get Lake Taps up and running and in service if that's needed. So really what they were looking for in the negotiation objectives was to find a way, again, uh, to bridge that gap, to potentially extend uh, our current supplies out 20 years or longer, um, ensuring that there is sufficient time to defer the Lake Taps development and um, you know, by doing so, limiting the, the rate hikes to consumers, um, providing reasonable and predictable costs, just ensuring that there's some flexibility in that contract to accommodate for, you know, supply and demand into the future, and also looking at more of a regional uh, approach to providing water supply. There's ample water supply, and I think that's important to note uh, from the get-go. There's ample water supply in this region. It's just not all connected. So having to, you know, find a way to regionalize it and make sure the there's some connectivity and there's some partnerships between the, the various agencies um, that supply water. So after two years of negotiation, there were two um, companies that set step forward with proposed contracts. You had Seattle Public Utilities, um, which is who the current contract is with right now, um, and Tacoma Public Utilities stepped up with their own proposal. Um, and both of these, I think it's important to note that uh, because of the declining water block, it is necessary for CWA to look at, a, at an additional contract um, to extend the water supply into the future. And so you know, either one of these options would be better than the current where we would be running out of water in, in 20 years. So just um, this map is also in your packet, but this is just the possible supply system um, for CWA, whether they go with Seattle Public Utilities or with Tacoma Public Utilities. And um, I don't know if you could see that at the bottom there, but at the very bottom is where Lake Taps is. So you've got to run lines um, all the way down um, by the time it's all constructed. So here's a comparison. Let me move this out of the way. A comparison between the two proposals. And as you'll see right up at the top, um, Seattle can only guarantee a block extension for 10 years. Uh, whereas Tacoma was looking at a 20-year guarantee through 2059. Um, even though the, the 
The usage uh, guarantee for uh, SPU is 33 million gallons per day on average, and TPU's um, average would be 20 million gallons per day uh, for all of its members. Um, CWA did an assessment and believes the 20 million gallons per day from Tacoma would be sufficient and adequate to get us through 2059. Um, the two proposals for, for Seattle, uh, there's an option for two five-year conditional block extensions. Uh, for TPU, we're looking at a five-year full capacity extension. Although it's not guaranteed, there are some viable options in the works and they believe this is highly likely. Um, if you look again over on the left-hand side with Seattle, there are very specific supply and demand conditions that have to be met. If those aren't met, then there, there's a 25% rate premium uh, increase to extended. So we're looking at considerable um, increase to, to um, consumers in terms of rate hikes. Um, the annual increase, there is an annual increase from 2024 to 2034, plus a lump sum of 14 million to get us through those 10 years. Now, if you look uh, below that in bold between the two, there is 132 million estimated savings um, compared to if we had to develop Lake, Lake Taps by 2042 um, under Seattle's proposal and under Tacoma's proposal, we're looking at nearly 300 million savings. Now, what Seattle does offer what they're saying they're offering is a 40-year conditional contract, but it's not for CWA. It would be to the individual members. There's additional costs to the individual members if they want to pull out of CWA. So I think, you know, at this point, based on current rates, um, with with the bonds, with current liabilities, it's $103 million um, to pull out of CWA. Um, the 40-year conditional contract, although that would be the, the, the most cost-effective and least expensive for our, our rate payers, um, they're actually saying this is very speculative. It's, it's highly unlikely that um, these conditions will be met where, you know, both five-year extensions will occur, the supply and demand uh, will be met, and, um, you know, they'd be saving $907 million, uh, based on developing, uh, not developing lake taps at all by 2042. Chuck, Mayor, yes. Councilman. Uh, um, one of the things with regard to those savings is it doesn't include the fact that we will still own Lake Taps. We will still incur all of the liabilities that, lakes, that we have in maintaining the lake. That, that's a great point. So for uh, Seattle and for Tacoma's proposals, this really just defers the development of Lake Taps. Um, but ultimately would rely on the development of lake taps. I think the only option where you wouldn't be developing lake taps would be the 40-year conditional contract. So correct. Um, these, it would just delay or push out and defer um, the, the construction costs. All right. So then um, let me. So what? Cascade staff are recommending based on these proposals is that um, the initial recommendation is that uh, CWA contract with Tacoma, and these are the reasons. They're, they're really looking at a longer-term supply certainty, the, the 20 years over the 10 years at a lower cost overall, lower construction risk, um, more flexibility in, in being able to accommodate um, the supply and demand over time, and then opportunities to regionalize the water system. Um, they believe that uh, 
that Tacoma is in a position to, to really want to develop a partnership with CWA. Um, my understanding from, from conversations uh, that, that staff have had with board members in various presentations, um, Seattle has been, you know, treating CWA as a customer as opposed to a partner. And so they're really looking at, you know, ways to regionalize the water system, get them all connected and have, have those partnerships. So the next steps is um, we are looking to collect some input feedback questions that we can share with Chuck Clark, who will be out here um, in March to present to um, the council. Chuck is CWA's lead contract negotiator, but he was also CEO of uh, CWA for quite some time and previous to that actually worked at um, SPU. Uh, so staff will collect the comments and then share it with CWA. And with that, happy to open up the floor. And of course, um, my colleagues here are here to answer questions as well. Thank you, Chuck. Any questions? Everyone understood that completely. <laughs> All on board. Councilmember Pascal. Well, I don't necessarily have quite a question. I mean, I have some comments here. Okay. Hopefully, others do too. But. It's been really, first of all, I, I, I enjoy being a board alternate on the Cascade Water Alliance. Uh, you know, Councilmember Sweet does all the work, and I get to kind of swoop in on, on the interesting kind of discussions that occur time to time. And the way that I look at this, and, and I've been kind of um, absorbing all of this uh, over the last few years, and then just trying to understand Cascade Water Alliance in general and what that entity is and what it does for us and the benefits it provides um, our, our community. And the way that I think about this is there's been, there's three major decisions in the history of Cascade Water Alliance. The first is to form the Cascade Water Alliance. The second was to purchase Lake Taps. And the third is the decision that's before us today. That's how I, I think, that's, that's the way I think about it. Um, and this is a pretty, pretty significant decision to potentially move away from Seattle Public Utilities and to partner with, with, with Tacoma, with the city of Tacoma uh, on the future of uh, water. And so it's exactly why we formed the Cascade Water Alliance was to basically, um, negotiate for our customers, our residents, um, a future water supply and, and uh, an equitable rates for us. So one of the cool things about the Cascade Water Alliance is that the folks that are in leadership positions there are former Seattle Public Utilities officials, people that led SPU that are now um, working for us to really dig into the details and are recommending that we move away from SPU. And so that's why I have deep trust in, in the staff and the recommendations um, because they were on the other side of the table uh, for many years and now are recommending that we, we move away for, for a variety of different reasons. Um, so that's just some background that I think everyone should, should understand. Um, and then the savings in dollars doesn't really give that entire picture. I know it, the dollars in the sense is important, but it's really about the building of the resiliency of the system. 
and and it gets us closer to Lake Taps, but it, we're starting to build the infrastructure that, that we need to distribute water across the region and really puts us into a better position for future negotiations. I mean, water's always gonna be an issue uh, for whatever community you live in, it, it always is. And so we're always gonna have to be thinking about uh, what's next. And uh, I think where we're going is, I fully support and it's it's really interesting to understand all of what has gone into it so good job so far thank, thank you Councilmember sweet okay just to echo uh, Councilmember Pascal's comments um, I've been on the cascade board for this is my 15th year uh, we have gone from a time when looking out there we had projections that have gone from this to this in terms of utilization of water. And it's because of smart think practices that we have been encouraging our, our community to do and because of things like Cascade was the one who paid everybody a rebate for their washing machines and dishwashers and toilets. Um, there, there's just been a, an amazing amount of work done um, to increase conservation, but to keep us in good water. Um, it's important to understand that we currently have a contract. I, th I think to add to uh, Councilmember Pascal's comment, I think there was another really important decision that was made, and that was the decision to initially contract with Seattle for the initial um, volumes of water that we arranged for, the, the water that's going to expire, or not expire, but start declining in 39. Um, that was a very important decision, and it, it gave us time. It set us up for what we really did project would be the development of Lake Taps. But as we have continued to grow and be more regional in our thinking and as conservation has been so effective, we can actually think of a time when perhaps we won't have to develop Lake Taps as a water source. Um, that, that would be the ultimate high. But we... Lake Taps needs to be, be, not become, it needs to be a resource for the entire region. One of the things that is so favorable about our discussions with Tacoma is Tacoma believes in a resilient system. Tacoma believes that inner ties and um, water sharing have to happen. Seattle doesn't wheel water, which is very difficult um, because they are so hung up on the pristine water that we all share. It's not a bad thing, but in fact, if that earthquake that we've been talking about for how many years actually happens, then we could be in a world of hurt if Howard Hansen or Mud, or Mud Mountain Dam um, is affected by those. So this ability to think resiliently with water that is re redundant in our system, we need to m make the system redundant to continue to have water when we when we turn our faucets on in the morning, and that's it. Thank you, Councilmember Black. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you for the presentation and and the materials in the memo, which were really uh, well done. And thank you for my colleagues' comments. The one uh, question I think, if it was in the materials, I missed it. In which case, I'll always apologize. Um, but I think maybe we and and uh, some of our residents probably want to make sure we understand that. If we do go, if Cascade Waterlines does go with the Tacoma proposal, 
what would be the decision, the moment of decision on the TAPS um, development, and how's that decision going to come forward, and how's that decision going to be made, and roughly what time frame are we talking about for that? I think. Assuming again that we do the Tacoma proposal with the t initial 20-year guarantee. And that's a great question. And so there's an initial 20-year and then an additional five-year extension. Um, and that gets us to, I think it was 2059. Um, and perhaps one of my colleagues might want to weigh in on that as well. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah, and, and some of these questions could probably be deferred to, to speak to Chuck Clark about because um, they just provided some, some basic materials, but I think he can get into the, the, the weeds with that. Okay, I, and I didn't mean to put anybody on the spot. Oh. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, I would, it would help me to understand, um, and I guess what I would say is it would help me to understand under the alternative proposals um, when that decision point is going to come, and how that decision is going to come forward to us, and um, and how that's you know what the criteria are going to be for deciding that. But um, so if we can find out more about that, that'd be great. Thanks. Correct. Um, I, I believe what uh, CWA is doing currently is through throughout this month and throughout the month of March, they are meeting with all seven members and giving the similar presentation. Um, and probably answering those questions. Following that, I think it'll be up to this council to provide direction to our representatives, in this case, mm -hmm. Council Member Sweet, um, to, to be a voting member uh, when this gets brought forth to the, the actual board for a vote. So I'm sure they'll be providing you with some decision points. Council Member Sweet. Okay, I, I just want to take a shot at it. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to put it off as long as we can. And we have, a, we have a process where we are building funds as fast as we can uh, for the Supply Development Fund, which um, I think has been around for four or five years now. Um, and as we build those funds, then we become more able to, to proceed with building. Um, I think it's important. We're deferring it as long as we can. So what I can tell you is it will, it will happen 20 years before <laughs> we need to use the water from Lake Taps, <coughs> if we ever have to use it. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you. Oh, is Deputy Mayor, okay. I was just going to respond to that quickly, Deputy Mayor, and then, um, so that is great news. I mean, actually, the one thing that you said, uh, former Adam Mayor, um, <laughs> Councilmember Sweet, is that um, the fact that it sounds like for the last five or six years, CWA has already started uh, developing, uh, funding a development fund. I think that's super important. Um, and so it's just good for me, it's helpful for me to know that that's already in the works because we should start preparing. Uh, by We don't want to get into a financial crunch when the time comes. The fact that they're already saving is really we've helpful. Been, so I appreciate that. We've actually been saving the entire time. So... We pay connection fees that go into a fund. We, we have millions of dollars put away. We're a very healthy organization. And it's all with this $2 billion price tag down the road, which just increases. But you're right. We're, we are we, we're preparing. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And 
Thank you, Councilmember Sweet, Councilmember Pascal, and uh, Public Works team, the Cascade team on this, um, because I can see from the presentation, your comments, and the packet, the, the foresight and the planning that's gone into this to avoid big rate spikes in the future. We know we're going to have to make some investments, but uh, working very hard to make sure that there aren't big shocks. Um, I think the same thing needs to apply within our own utility rate setting within the city. Um, we've talked some about where the decision points are for Cascade. Um, I'd like to also understand where those decision points line up with our own budget setting process and um, also be looking at how we set our rates to also avoid any big surprises and try to do some rate stabilization as necessary because some of the calendar items that see there um, has cascade decision making happen where we're very late in our budget cycle. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we want to be a little proactive, even even though we won't necessarily have the precision and numbers of, of the impact of the cascade rates, we do know we're going to need to make some investments and that may mean some uh, moderate increases in our water rates that I think we should think of independently of the schedule of the cascade process. Thank you. Um, so th thank you. This is uh, George, like the financial planning manager. Um, so we do have, we have asked uh, CB CWA staff about this. And again, we're kind of very preliminary in their process and in our process. What we, what we know so far is that they obviously are aware um, that this affects all seven members and that we have our rate setting processes and they are, you know, they know of those, they know of our timelines and they're committed to working with those. But more specifically in terms of the potential rate impact in the short term, when um, CWA staff has told us this, that there's a possible um, smaller rate increase in 25, 26, depending on their staffing needs to implement whatever the decision is, and then more significant rate increases in 27, 28. In terms of the medium term and, and, your, question, and your question about how we could build up our own kind of fund for potential rate increases in the future, that's something that we can work with um, the consultants who are helping us with our own utility rates on, but it's also something that we're hopeful with the, with the relatively long timeline until Lake Taps actually needs to come on that we can continue to kind of build that as it gets closer. So I think the, the answer is essentially that we're in a very preliminary stage, but that I would say CWA staff has been very aware that we and all the other cities or districts are working on our own budget processes and utility rate timelines, and they're committed to working with those. Go ahead, Grant. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, our contract with our uh, rate modeling uh, uh, contractor, uh, FCS, does require them to have at least a six-year uh, projection with our rates. Great to hear. It sounds like you all are all over it. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else have comments? Um, I just want to echo thanking Councilmember Pascal and Councilmember Sweet for being on this committee, and it just proves once again that our participation in these regional committees are crucial. So thank you. Um, and city manager, we're on, we're on time. We're on thank time. you, Truck, thank you. and thank you, George. So now we're moving to Stores to Shores Greenway Project Update. Yes, so thank you. Um, Mercurus, we got questions about this um, at the end of last year, and we promised to come back and give you all an update on what's happening with the Stores to Short Greenway project and how we're responding to the public feedback. 
Um, so here to give you that update is our Public Works Transportation Planner, Planner Victoria Kovacs. Oh, and I see Doug <laughs> is also here. To, welcome, Doug. Thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. Good evening, uh, Mayor Curtis, members of the council. My name is Doug McIntyre. I am the transportation manager in the Public Works Department. And I uh, just wanted to give a brief introduction to the topic and um, Victoria. So uh, Stores of Shores and Neighborhood Greenways, we have uh, work underway to implement uh, the Stores of Shores uh, Greenway project. And uh, it's kind of a collaboration right now between the uh, transportation team and the CIP team. It is currently at 60% design. And um, we have Rod Steitzer here to support us uh, in Q&A if needed. Um, and Scott Gonsar on the CIP team is the PM for the project. Uh, but on the planning side, Victoria Kovacs has um, played a really critical role uh, in getting this project moving and uh, including engaging with the community and working through uh, just a variety of things related to um, the route and other elements of the project that you'll get the update on shortly. So with that being said, I'd like to introduce Victoria. Thank you. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. Not as tall as Doug. <laughs> All right. So, good evening, Council, Mayor, Deputy Mayor. My name is Victoria Kovacs. I'm a transportation planner in our Public Works Department, and I'm giving you a briefing on the Stores to Shores Greenway. This is an informational briefing. There's not an action of Council at this time. And as myself or Christian Knight, our Public Works Community Engagement Coordinator, have given presentations about greenways, we've actually started out with an icebreaker poll with multiple choice answers. I'm not going to quiz you, don't worry. But we've been really surprised because we asked, what is a greenway? Really simple question. And a lot of people did not know what is a greenway. So we've got some work to do in educating people. So thank you for having me here tonight. This is a great opportunity to share about them. So I have a simple two-part agenda. First, I'm going to go into what is a greenway, who are they for, why they are important, and some existing policies. And then I'll go into the Stores to Shores Greenway, which is our third greenway now, and some of the route changes we've made in response to the community input thus far. So first, what is a greenway? And before you are some images of tools that we use on greenways. Greenways are identifiable by the posted speed limit of 20 miles an hour and the green branded Kirkland Neighborhood Greenway sign that has a bicycle symbol and a pedestrian symbol. And the formal definition is neighborhood greenways are a select network of low speed, low volume residential streets prioritized for walking and bicycling through the use of signage, pavement markings, and traffic calming and control devices, some of which are pictured here. The purpose of a neighborhood greenway is to provide a route for people of all ages and abilities to feel safe walking and riding bicycles as a comfortable alternative to busy arterials. So who are greenways for? We often get this question, who are we designing for with a greenway? And I'm gonna take a minute with this slide because it is really important. This graphic is called the four types of cyclists and it segments the general population into these four groups of non-bicyclists, interested but concerned, somewhat confident and highly confident, roughly according to the percentages below of 30%, 50%, 5%, 5%. And this categorization was actually developed back in 2006 by Roger Geller, the bicycle coordinator of the city of Portland. 
at a time when the city was trying to understand the target market of how we can get more people to bike. And through a series of polls and surveys of the public, they heard the primary barrier to people biking more is a fear of motor vehicle traffic. So these categories were developed to help inform what kind of engineering we would need to do to get people on bikes and riding. And what's even more interesting is this has been substantiated on a national level by a study in 2015 by the Portland Studies University, uh, Portland State University Urban Studies professor, Jennifer Dill, and they did a study through the National Association of Realtors. And even more interesting is we had done a survey through our active transportation plan, and over half of our respondents were interested in walking and biking more, but the primary barrier was a fear of motor vehicle traffic. So when I say all ages and abilities, I'm referring to that interested but concerned group, the largest slice of the pie. So next, why are greenways important? As I mentioned, they enable people of all ages and abilities to comfortably walk, bike, and roll in their neighborhood. We're connecting destinations, schools, parks, and neighborhoods. They lower residential traffic speeds. They're a low-cost implementation tool. They help achieve our broader climate goals, and they are foundational to our network of our adopted plans. And I put in the green box the city council goal of balanced transportation, which is to reduce reliance on single occupancy vehicles and improve multimodal connectivity. And just as a reminder, transportation is half of all of Kirkland's greenhouse gas emissions per our sustainability master plan. And we do have a goal to reduce the average amount a person drives. So I wanna bring up a reminder of our historical commitment to greenways. Greenways were first adopted in our 2015 Transportation Master Plan under the goal, connect bicycle facilities that are safe, nearby, easy to use, and popular with people of all ages and abilities. Very clear policy there, build a network of greenways with two actions to develop standards and to prioritize and construct projects. Then in our 2022 Active Transportation Plan, we continued that goal to create a bicycle network for people of all ages and abilities, and greenways are listed as a strategy for that goal. Greenways also support our goal for Vision Zero, which is by 2035, eliminate all transportation-related fatal and serious injury crashes in Kirkland. So it does support our broader safety initiatives, and objective one, prioritize safe street design, Greenways are, again, a strategy under that objective. So in 2018, the city developed the Greenways Guide for Implementation. And this was developed with uh, resident advisory group, the Transportation Commission. And this document really functions as a standards as we look at a new Greenway project and when we want to implement it. And I've called out here the performance measures listed in that document because it really sets the bar of what we want to achieve with a greenway. Low vehicle speeds, low volumes, safe crossings at arterials, and an increase in use per year. This document also has a conceptual routing map. And as we've learned in our outreach, the routing is what the community is really interested in. So in looking at a route, we start with this conceptual map, but then we gotta 
kind of bring in, we want to connect destinations, we want a low stress route, and we want to think about our broader network and of our adopted plans, and then balance the realities of the many hills we have in Kirkland with the directness to those connections, to those destinations. I wanted to remind everyone that we now have two neighborhood greenways in Kirkland, the North Rose Hill and South Rose Hill greenways pictured here. It's really lovely if you haven't been out. Again, it's identifiable by the 20 miles an hour posted speed limit. Uh, there's wayfinding and pavement markings for bicycling, safe intersection crossing treatments, such as a bicycle level push button, there's traffic calming devices, just speed humps, and there's also, also lovely whimsical art. With that, I will move on to the Stores to Shores Greenway. Okay. So the Stores to Shores is a crosstown east-west greenway and in 2020, the city received federal grant funding for implementation of this project as it connects our two urban centers, the stores of Totem Lake and the shores of downtown. The route is just over three miles. And once we got to the 30% concept level, we started some project outreach. A project update mailer was sent to every parcel within 500 feet of this route. And we had a project website. And what was interesting was while we anticipated comments about some of the devices like speed cushions or traffic circles, a lot of the comments were about the route. And when I say route, I mean, what street is it on? Where is it going? So that was a big takeaway. And then we adjusted our engagement to also take on route comments. This is a summary of our outreach. From this fall, we did do the mailers, the website, we had signs in the wild. We did attend the neighborhood association meetings of uh, North Rose Hill, Norkirk, Highlands, and the Market neighborhood. We also had a meeting with the Kirkland Greenways Advocacy Group. We had an online forum for our capital improvement projects. And we did share this update with the Transportation Commission this December. Um, I included this map in your packet, and I also printed it out for you. Um, but this is a nice summary map to show that we listened. The blue map is the original route we started out with from our grant application. And the red route is now where we are in design. And I'm going to go into details about those route changes. But before I do, a reminder that overall we want a safe route. We want to connect destinations such as schools, parks, the cross Kirkland corridor. We want a route that makes sense within our broader network. And we want to consider the hills and the utility of the route. So I'm going to zoom in on this area. The first major route change was made in the Norkirk neighborhood near Peter Kirk Elementary. And we heard very clearly that Sixth Street is a very stressful route, a very busy street. And additionally, between 11th and 12th Avenues, there is a pinch point, which is pictured on the left. There's some curb extensions. So 
a less confident rider would not be able to ride on the side of the street. They would be required to take the lane, which is not low stress or all ages and abilities. So the neighborhood proposed this alternate route on 4th Street and 13th Avenue, which we did think was a good route change. And it also directly connects to the Rays crosswalk at Peter Kirk Elementary, so a direct connection to the main entrance of the school. And it also connects to another neighborhood park, Van Alst Park. The second route change, which council might have received communication about, was in the Highlands neighborhood. So the map on the left is an image of the street slopes in the Highlands neighborhood, where green is not that steep and red is very steep. So Highlands is a beautiful but very hilly neighborhood. There's not an easy way to get up. <laughs> but um, in looking at the original route on Northeast 97th Street, it is a very steep slope. It has a maximum slope of 22%. And it is a street that is closed in winter conditions. So we heard very clearly from both the neighborhood and the Greenways advocates that it would not be a tenable route for people to bike up and down on a regular basis. And instead, they suggested using 112th Avenue Northeast, which is very popular today, and it is identified as a Greenway in our active transportation plan. So I just masked that out so you can see the two changes in the route. I brought up this slide again to say there, are, there were many other requests for route changes from the neighborhood. And considering route changes, we did want a clear safety or user benefit. And thinking about these standards in our Greenways guidelines about we want a low stress route, we want to connect destinations, we want to think about our adopted plan networks, we're balancing the hills, and then again, our broader goals of what we want to achieve out of this project. So we did listen and we did assess other route changes, but we didn't incorporate all of them if they didn't meet a clear safety or utility benefit. So next steps, uh, as Doug mentioned, the project is at 60% design. So we are anticipating to continue that and actually construct and complete the project by the year end weather pending, of course. And then the guidelines document that I shared, that standards document, is a work plan item for the transportation group. So I'll be working on that in this year. So I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Um, this is an exciting program. Did the Transportation Commission uh, make any recommendations or any give any guidance we should be aware of? The Transportation Commission was supportive of the route changes. They did give us some additional design comments as we advance the project, such as more crosswalks or more pavement markings, things of that nature that we can incorporate as the project advances in design. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for this great presentation. Um, and thank you, Doug, as well, for the introduction. Um, I really appreciate all the work that's being done to engage with different community stakeholder groups and neighbors um, in the area. So thank you so much for all of that and for clearly demonstrating how 
that feedback was incorporated into changes. There's nothing like the folks who live close by, who know their neighborhood, who know their community, and like, it's too steep here, or this is actually a better path this way. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, I know that's a lot of work, but it's um, well worth it in planning this. Um, I heard at a meeting last week from a mom who lives in the area who has kids at various schools in the area that um, she was really curious. She had some ideas. I don't know the specific ideas, but she was really curious about how, um, since this is such close proximities to, to some schools, like Peter Kirk Elementary, it goes along the, the south side of it there, just what kind of synergy there is between this and any um, safer routes to school um, improvements that we have planned close by. Did we hear other feedback about, um, about um, school walk uh, roll and bike routes um, and kind of, I, you know, are there opportunities for overlap between the two plans or can you just kind of speak to that a little bit? Yeah, the route actually goes along a designated school walk route, which is 10th Avenue and 13th Avenue is a, a school walk route. 9th Avenue at Market Street is identified in the Safer Routes to School plan to improve that crossing, so we incorporate that recommendation. And we also improve Slater Avenue by filling in sidewalk gaps, which was another recommendation in the Safer Routes to School plan. I will say there are many other projects identified in our active transportation plan, and we hope this is just another green way, and we're going to move on to the next one and connect even more schools. So definitely, we want to connect to those destinations. Thank you, I really appreciate that. I know with our like safer routes to school um, improvements that we often communicate with the school or the school district to let them know. Um, do we have something, let's have something similarly planned here um, since it's such close proximity to the schools, just so that the families, again, since there was, like I said, a mom who had questions about this, that way we can um, you know, just help communicate to the families there what the plan is and what improvements they can look forward to. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Victoria, thanks for your efforts so far. I know that you've been responding to questions from the community and always appreciate your thoughtful answers. I know that takes some time. Uh, so regarding this Greenway and just Greenways in general, what I like is the better connections that they provide to, to different destinations in the city and they supplement the other facilities we have, uh, bike facilities along arterials or trails or, or, or so forth. Um, the other, the, the biggest thing for me is, is how they calm traffic along the route uh, through implementation of the speed humps or traffic circles or speed limit changes. Uh, I think that's, that's a, a real huge benefit that I appreciate. And I, and so there's something about like, how it navigates through Norkirk and how it, um, you know, introduces additional traffic calming devices into a neighborhood that has a number of, of calming devices. So I think I, I really do appreciate that and like that. One of the things that I looked at was that I was trying to understand was just the process of how we got here and just trying to kind of dissect that a little bit. And, and maybe you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong is so the transportation master plan identifies the routes. Um, it has a map that shows the greenways that we've identified throughout the city. The greenway implementation plan that was created in 2015, nine years ago, uh, prioritized all the different routes. And so this was like the next one on the list. 
Um, it was actually tied with a couple others, but um, it was it was one of the more complete ones. And then <clears throat> once fund, and so then that dictates how we go about securing funding to build. Once we secure the funding, then that's when we go out to the public to ask about not about routing or about whether this is the right the next greenway. It's really about the design options on the greenway, and that's kind of where that's kind of how we got to where we are today, right? So the decisions on the routing and why this was funded and prioritized happened eight, nine years ago um, through the transportation master plan. Um, well, that's at least how um, all our policy documents are, are set up. And so now we're here, the public here is being asked to provide input on the design components of the Greenway. Um, so for me, I would really like to make sure that we're, re that we're looking at the routes that are in on the Greenway map and the prioritization. Because it's essentially eight, nine years old, how do we feel about that now, given all the other things that have changed in the city over that time? I hope that that's being scrutinized as part of the transportation master plan update. Is that true? Yes, and as I mentioned, updating this guidelines document is a work plan item for this year. So incorporating the lessons learned we have from this Greenway and our other two Greenways into that document as well. Like, is the outreach process the right process? Do we need to think about coming to the community earlier or later or with different information? I think we've learned two different things from the two different Greenways, which is interesting. The 128th Greenway, we did not get a lot of comments from the route, as I've been told. This was before my time at the city, but as I've been told, we did not get a lot of comments about the route, but about the treatment devices, like stop sign changes or the diverter, whereas this route, we have not got a lot of comments about the treatment devices, got a lot of comments about the route. Mm. So it seems to me that we'll probably have to carefully craft a solution for each project as we get into it. and advance from a line on a map to what is it like in real life? Great comment, though. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'd really like to hear the community's input and the, and the Transportation Commission's input on the, on the map and whether or not changes should be made to other greenways that are not built yet, that we're not designing, that we might consider down the road, and whether those are the right routes and, any, and whether anything should be changed there, just given what has changed in our community. In terms of just one comment on this uh, design, uh, one of the biggest, I think, probably cost items is that we're building a very wide sidewalk or multi-use facility along Market Street. We're essentially moving the curb line from Market Street um, uh, to accommodate users of both bicycles and, and walkers. And so this is kind of, when you look at Market Street, what I is that um, the curb line is pretty much the same up and down Market Street from one end to the other. This is going to introduce, and I might be wrong, but this is gonna introduce a, a different curb line for a, a block or two. Uh, and what I've always was thinking is that having the curb lines the same for the entire stretch of road is that it provides options for the future. Um, if we want to consider other ways in which to utilize the parking lane or other things for, for perhaps uh, bus lanes or other things like that, this precludes that option. This is going to permanently kind of remove that uh, as an option 
um, and it's a higher cost option, did we consider lower cost options to where we didn't move the curb, but we just installed some extruded curb or some tubes or something that allowed for bikes to move and pedestrians to be over there? Or, uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, and this is a great plug also for our transportation strategic plan now, not, no longer the master plan, but the strategic plan update. Um, we do have a now live public web map where people can give us comments on all of the lines and projects, including greenways and transit projects. The transit implementation plan did identify a bus business access lane in the northbound direction on Market Street that would have removed the existing parking and the bike lane. And as we revisited that project, that was also a recommendation back from, I believe, 2015. And understanding the utilization of market by the bicyclists, we didn't feel removing the bike lane was appropriate. So instead, we looked at a Q-Jump project that would still have transit reliability and speed further north on the corridor. As far as the detail of moving the curb lines on market, we did, of course, consider that. We did want to create a safe connection. It is a little difficult with the grid change of west of market to cross at 9th Avenue, the existing crosswalk. So we felt widening the sidewalk, utilizing it's only a few parking spaces, would be the safest option and the most intuitive option. I will give our consultants credit. They did a lot of different iterations of that diagonal crossing. It is a little unique geometry. But I do think it is a good design option. And we can certainly look at other lower cost treatments there or anywhere on the route. Actually, we've looked at you know, painted curb extensions mm -hmm. instead of curbed curb extensions to get that win and really stretch our dollars on this project. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I was going, was trying to stretch our dollars and, and to implement low cost infrastructure that still gives the same safety benefits, whether that's painted curbs with tubing or extruded curbs. This is going to fit into our next conversation a little bit, but to do similar treat, uh, do different treatments that provide similar benefits, right? That are lower costs, so that we can stretch our dollars and do more. Um, that's really um, something that I'm, I know that I've hit on in the past and continue to focus on. Thank you, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, uh, Victoria, great job um, with the presentation and the materials and answering our questions. I appreciate it. Um, I just have one uh, sort of detailed question. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm actually hoping this is um, the segue from uh, the conversation we just had about looking for ways to stretch our dollar. I was uh, just quickly comparing um, our uh, Safer Routes to School plan uh, and some of the projects um, in this area, Safer Routes to School and um, the Greenway. One thing I note is that we have a Safer Routes to School project at 9th and Market. Uh, I think it's Norkirk 9. Um, and I was just going to ask you, I, I don't, you may not be prepared to answer this question, but I was going to ask you, are we able to, um, having the Greenway cross at 9th um, and Market, are we able to tackle both that Safer Routes to School enhanced crossing as well at the same time we're doing this project? Yes, definitely. It would be checking the box on that project as implemented because it's not funded at this moment. Okay, great. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you.
All right, continuing our public works <clears throat> study session, we're going to move to decorative placement or decorative pavement markings <clears throat> program briefing, city manager. Okay, thank you. Now I get to formally introduce Doug McIntyre, our transportation manager this time. It's on my notes. Um, um, and also we have surface water manager Kelly Jones um, is also available because we'll be talking about uh, this use with respect to stormwater as well. Um, and so tonight we're looking to provide council some background and get a little bit of feedback. Uh, so take it away, Doug. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. Uh, good evening again. Uh, good evening, Mayor Curtis and members of the council. My name is Doug McIntyre, Transportation Manager. Um, tonight we're here to talk about a um, decorative pavement markings program and kind of commencing that work. Um, we have a few topics. We're going to keep it kind of concise tonight, um, but we're going to go over some context, talk about some categories that we've identified of the types of decorative pavement markings that we can pursue. Um, go over policy considerations for actually implementing a program uh, and then open it up for discussion and get guidance from the council. We really uh, would like to hear input on the different levers and dials that you can um, adjust as we build this program. Uh, and then the hope is that we can come back uh, internal, we can internally take that input and then um, come up with a better plan and come back to council. So starting off with some background and context uh, on the screen is the uh, city's uh, pride crosswalk uh, at uh, Lakeshore Plaza. Um, and that is an example of one type of decorative pavement marking. So this, uh, this work uh, started about a year ago, from my understanding, um, as a legislative request memo. Uh, the presentation was given by our now deputy city manager, Julie Underwood. Uh, and the conversation really related to, to kind of two pieces, specifically implementing a pride crosswalk uh, by June of 2023, uh, but also a lot of input on having a citywide program to um, really formalize what the city wants to do uh, throughout, throughout Kirkland. Um, work was done to install the Pride Crosswalk in 2023, by June of 2023, um, and uh, almost immediately repair and maintenance work began uh, to keep the crosswalk uh, looking good and in, in good, good shape. Um, and then, uh, of course, the final bullet here is uh, commencing the work on a citywide program tonight. So that's kind of where we're starting from. Um, and it's really important to talk about the types of decorative pavement markings that we want to um, look at in Kirkland. Uh, as you can see on the screen, one that uh, almost always comes to mind in this area is the Wallingford Ladybug. Uh, it's uh, kind of got a uh, like legend of its own. Um, so uh, here we've outlined four types, uh, starting with art and crosswalks, which again, uh, kind of in the category of the uh, pride crosswalk. Uh, we have uh, identified that one separately because it's um, uh, in support of a cause. Uh, we also have community building, community building pavement markings, such as the ladybug, Wallingford ladybug, uh, which are sort of placemaking in nature. Uh, we also have traffic safety related pavement markings, which are clearly safety uh, related in nature. Uh, and then a storm drain uh, pavement art program, which is uh, more education and engagement uh, related. So starting out with the uh, art and crosswalks, so a little bit more specifically, uh, often these are used to express support for a cause. They're not always uh, for that purpose, but uh, a lot of times they are. Um, they typically have the required elements of a crosswalk, the retroreflective transverse white bars uh, indicating a crosswalk, and then decorative pavement uh, markings in between the bars. 
Um, as, as noted in the memo, we are uh, suggesting that this be held uh, kind of separately outside of this discussion, um, partly because uh, it can be dealt with in, in an ad hoc fashion due to the fact that um, showing support for a cause can kind of come up in um, a variety of ways. Uh, and so we do want to carve that out, uh, again, separately from the, uh, the rest of the program and dealt sort of on an ad hoc basis with council, heavy council involvement. Um, so for the rest of the presentation tonight, we will talk mostly about the other three categories. Um, so the second uh, item here is uh, community building, building pavement markings. Again, kind of placemaking in nature. The one on the screen here is from North Portland. Uh, these are generally community driven. Uh, the city would uh, not necessarily have any heavy involvement in doing this, but really kind of uh, encourage a grassroots approach. Um, these are generally intended for low volume, low speed intersections so that um, they can uh, last longer uh, and uh, be more of that kind of neighborhood placemaking idea. Um, the third, uh, third item here is uh, the traffic safety related pavement markings. Uh, on the screen is an image from San Luis Obispo, California. Uh, and the idea here is that the painted white lines extend the curb, can be referred to as a bulb out of the curb, curb extension, uh, with delineators. And then within that, between the curb and the delineators is a decorative uh, pavement uh, installation. Um, these, are, these are primarily for uh, safety purposes, as you can see, uh, by putting the delineators down, it shortens the distance for pedestrians to cross the street uh, and be exposed to vehicles. Um, it also uh, uh, makes the turn radius such that you have to slow down to make that turn instead of kind of uh, just uh, cutting the corner. Um, and so the city would uh, really have a heavy hand in this kind of uh, pavement installation in the sense that uh, we would want to be able to uh, identify the locations. Uh, we would obviously consider uh, very heavily community input on this, um, but ultimately we would want to have uh, the engineers review and um, suggest uh, these installations. Uh, in this case, the city would recommend um, funding these types of installations. Uh, we also have the storm, storm drain pavement art uh, category, which as you can see is meant to sort of enhance uh, storm drains and uh, catch basins and other storm water related elements of our infrastructure. Um, again, these are primarily for educational purposes um, and really building community around these, these art installations. Um, it helps to uh, also educate the public about pollution prevention. Um, and for these, the uh, public works staff would want to uh, prioritize the storm drain locations that these would be installed at, um, and also similar to uh, the community building pavement installations be um, located in low traffic uh, parts of the city. Um, one point to note is that similar to other roadway markings, these would be um, done with the intent of having minimal environmental impact. Uh, anytime there would be an installation of this nature, there would be pollution prevention um, work involved. <clears throat> so um, moving from the categories now, I think we really want to focus on uh, the discussion around the policy considerations for this citywide program. So uh, on the screen are um, kind of the main points. Obviously, in our discussion, there might be other things that we want to add. Uh, within each of these points, again, are levers and dials that we can adjust to be more uh, suited to what we want to um, implement in Kirkland. Uh, but starting out, we want, uh, obviously, decision-making process, we will need to uh, set up an application uh, process for this. 
Um, but ultimately, uh, these kind of, if you think of a flow chart, um, we would want these to be safe and, and not be distracting to drivers and not be confusing, uh, not be confused with traffic safety elements uh, in the roadway. Um, so that's kind of the, the main um, uh, first decision point. We also want to ensure that any time there are pavement markings, uh, the decorative nature, that they are conveying um, government speech, uh, which is, uh, my understanding, is um, uh, held to a different standard than um, just generally uh, freedom of speech. So um, those are some important elements uh, in, in decision making. Um, also, uh, with regard to um, uh, the traffic safety program, we would want to uh, carve that out separately because it would be safety related. So we would want to allow the city to have a separate process to do the traffic safety related pavement markings. Oops, sorry. Uh, for the evaluation criteria, there's, there are obviously a lot of um, things to consider, um, but again, uh, at a minimum, safety for drivers and <coughs> users of the roadway. Um, uh, we also want to um, evaluate the location. So uh, it does depend on the type of pavement marking uh, being considered. Again, um, you know, community building uh, pavement uh, installations would be low volume, low, low uh, speed environment. Um, and then traffic safety would be uh, areas of need. So there are um, some delineations there. Um, and then uh, let's see, for maintenance, uh, one thing that's kind of important to note is, uh, this is also identified in the memo, but uh, using some of the lessons learned from the city's first installation of a, a art uh, pavement, decorative pavement paint installation, um, there is a large uh, uh, body of work related to maintenance, keeping it in good repair and in, uh, ensuring that we are representing the community appropriately. Um, there are a lot of costs associated with that. And so uh, the city is suggesting that we do uh, look at these all as ephemeral, uh, with the exception of the traffic safety related uh, elements of an installation. Um, and the reason for this is to ensure that we can uh, be clear about what's needed to um, uh, make this a, pro a program that we can implement and not uh, allocate uh, extra staff, extra equipment, extra training, et cetera. Um, for costs, uh, the city is, uh, again, suggesting that we would um, pay or uh, fund the implementation of the traffic safety related markings uh, because those would be city driven. The community building type of uh, markings would be more uh, grassroots in nature and the city would not look to fund that uh, directly. However, there could be considerations for grant programs or stipends or something of that nature if the council wishes. Um, uh, again, um, the cost for maintenance is a large piece of that. So by looking at these as ephemeral, um, you kind of take away a big uh, burden there for costs. Um, <clears throat> liability. Uh, so uh, one thing that came up in the discussion a, a year ago on the LRM was about liability. And it uh, essentially what the question was, well, are we going to be at more risk if we have these installations? And, and at that time, the question was more about um, art and crosswalks. Um, but uh, we look to the MUTCD, which is the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and the required elements are the retroreflective white transverse bars for crosswalks in this, in this case. Um, but anything that is conveying a traffic safety message uh, has that retroreflectivity. So anything that would be installed would be um, paint and not uh, of a retroreflective in nature. Um, so that, that helps us kind of 
draw that line in the sand between required and uh, decorative. Um, of course, I did mention also about speech. So again, anything that we would want to be um, installing in our rights of way would be government speech uh, consistent with the message that the city of Kirkland wants to convey. <coughs> um, and then finally to wrap up here is a note on staff time. As I mentioned, um, you know, there are elements of this that we would need to uh, be heavily involved in. Uh, one would be the application process. That does uh, involve um, a lot of uh, you know, staff time to review, depending on how many and ty the types of applications we would get. It is something that we would need to look at. Um, one thing to note here is that the, given the workloads that we have currently, uh, we are looking at the earliest that this could probably commence on a citywide basis is, is 2025, potentially later than that, depending on um, a variety of factors. So. Um, that is definitely a consideration here and making sure that we do it, but also do it the right way with the right um, appropriate level of uh, staff engagement. Um, with that, I will open it up to uh, discussion. Thank you, Doug. And um, great presentation. And I'm sure when you started this career, you thought, someday I'm going to do a presentation on a ladybug on a street. <laughs> so. I was, yeah, yeah, totally, 100%. <laughs> yeah, you can see that. All right. Who wants to start? Councilmember Tim Chisholm. Thank you. Is, is there a board or commission that these issues would go to or these applications would go to or a citizens group before they come to the city council? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't think we've gotten to the point of suggesting that level of the process yet. Um, although I do know just by way of example that uh, I believe the utility box art goes through the art commission. So, um, uh, yeah, we haven't had any conversations internally about that quite yet. I, uh, yeah. I was just suggesting that because in addition to staff time, there's, you know, city council time and as opposed to us holding deliberations on what specific artwork is appropriate, maybe, <laughs> maybe there would be uh, an appropriate board or commission that could do that. Uh, thank you. Definitely something thank that could be considered. Thank you. Um, Councilmember Pascal. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for the information and, and looking at this in different ways. My interest, I've expressed interest in this, and and I really, it was one day that I was mm -hmm. out and about and I drove by the, the 7th Avenue, um, you know, decorative uh, pavement there. And I hadn't known about that, and this was on council. And so I was with my son, and I, I was like, okay. I gotta stop, I gotta get out, and I gotta take a picture. And he's like, Dad, come on, let's keep going. I was like, no, this is really cool. I gotta take a photo of this, this is neat. Um, so, and that, that's, a real, that's a traffic safety um, example where we're trying to bring in the curbs and reduce the turning radii and slow speeds and so forth and, and enhance the visibility of pedestrians crossing there. And that's what I'm really interested in is the traffic safety element um, through reducing vehicle speeds, cha changing behavior and culture of drivers and, uh, and so forth, and, and providing that enhanced uh, visibility of those that are uh, walking and biking. The types of, of, of areas that I really see this are the things that I think you've talked about, but the chicanes or the reducing widths of roadways that, where there's like ample pavement that's unused, it's, you know, it's kind of excessive. We can kind of bring that in without having to spend lots of money to do that, uh, ripping it out. 
the traffic circles. I really like what Bellevue's done, where they've they've created the track instead of putting in the, the the curbs and the plantings and the costly items. They've painted and then put in some uh, kind of candlesticks around that, and that's been really neat. I've really liked it. Those have been uh, cool to see. And then, you know, like what we've done on 7th Avenue. So I personally, I would just like to see how that traffic, those traffic safety pavement markings could be integrated into a toolkit that, that we could, you know, make, make people aware of, whether that's through the neighborhood safety program, um, through the neighborhood associations, you know, as they're thinking about ideas, um, and then just kind of integrate it into our capital improvement program as another tool that we could use instead of these other costly items that are going to provide these enhanced benefits, not only less costly, but other benefits as well. So that's what I'd, I'd love to see. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. <coughs> well, Councilmember Pascal, I totally appreciate another council member nerding out on taking pictures and making their kids like wait. The amount of pictures I have on my phone of public art in various cities and various active transportation things in other cities, like I am constantly on the lookout for that too. So I, I appreciated that story. Um, well, Doug, thank you so much for this presentation. I am really excited about this program. I think it has a lot of potential. I understand we want to take the time to do it right, and I know staff are working on a lot of really important things this year. So I appreciate that and being self-aware of wanting it to be a success. Um, you know, I love that it's like at the intersection of multiple topics that are important to us. And yes, pun totally intended, the intersection. Anyway, I'm feeling corny tonight. Anyway, um, you know, it, it involves, as Councilmember Pascal mentioned, after transportation safety, right? Um, it also includes community building, which is really important, especially in today's time. It's inexpensive, right? Um, and it also um, creates public art as well, right? These are all things that I'm passionate about that, you know, as a council, we've expressed interest in, in pursuing even more. Um, I was really interested. I read a um, Washington Post op-ed recently that was published last week on this very issue, so very timely. And they mentioned, I'm no expert on this, but I'm glad, Doug, that you mentioned the United States Department of Transportation Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, the MUTCD. I don't know how you said that mud. Anyway, however you pronounce that, um, that it was very recently updated in the just the past couple months on this very issue, um, whereas historically, um, well, I'm not even going to attempt to summarize it, but it's more friendly in favor of this. Now is the moral of the story. There's more details there, but I will not get into all of those. Um, I thought that was really interesting, and in particular, they referenced that that op-ed references a study from 2022 that looked at well, it was actually a, a report of two different studies. The first study was looking at 17 uh, different places, different cities, different improvements that were done with this type of art um, as a public safety improvement, and they looked at actual crash data and safety data before and after installation. They had to have at least a two-year history, I think, was the minimum criteria for that. The second study was in five of those, in five locations, they were able to have video footage of behavior before and after, and they analyzed and compared both of those. And the analysis found um, significantly improved safety performance across a variety of measures during periods when asphalt art was installed. And this wasn't just the type of art that we're talking about, what that we're calling our... Um, 
traffic safety related pavement markings. This was a variety of different type of markings, even some of the ones like crosswalks and um, the, art, the community building art that we're talking about. So it's a variety of different types of um, uh, public art traffic safety installations, more specifically from the one that compared the the um, crash data before and after, they found a 50% decrease in the rate of crashes involving pedestrians or other vulnerable road users, a 37% decrease in the rate of crashes that lead to injuries, and a 17% total decrease in crash rate. So that's pretty significant. And then in, in, in what they call the observational behavior assessment, where they looked at the video footage of pedestrian and driver behavior before and after the installation, they found a 25% decrease in pedestrian crossings involving a conflict with driver, um, a 27% increase in frequency of drivers immediately yielding to pedestrians with the right of way, so they were more likely to yield, and a 38% decrease in pedestrians crossing against the walk signal. So everyone's behavior improved. The pedestrian's behavior improved, the driver's behavior improved, the actual safety improved, number of crashes improved, the injuries improved, all from this artwork. So this is one that was cited, as I mentioned in the op-ed, that also mentions the MUTCD recent improvements. Um, Seattle, interestingly, was cited as one of the kind of pioneering cities on this type of artwork. So I'd like to, for us to look at all of these categories potentially as safety improvements, because I do think there's likely some value in all of them, even if historically the United States Department of Transportation and the transportation engineering industry has not. It seems to be moving in that direction, more friendlier and more understanding that this does change folks' behavior. This does increase overall safety for both drivers and pedestrians and bicyclists. So I'm really excited about that part of it, right? As you, I've told my story a million times, school walk route safety is what got me involved in working with the city. So I'm super, super excited about that. I also love art. I'm an art docent at my, you know, kids elementary school. You know, I'm very passionate about public art. So I'm so excited that public art is an aspect of this and that it's inexpensive, right? I remember like when learning more about the Cultural Arts Commission when I was brand new on council and how expensive everything was, and how much red tape there was. I mean, they do an amazing job with all of the, the hurdles that they have to, to bring forth more public art. This is such a quick and easy way to have more traffic safety improvements, pedestrian, you know, after transportation safety improvements, and to have more public art, right? I've said this so many times. I see canvases everywhere, and this is just a whole nother, you know, um, area of canvases that we have in our city, and there's so much of it. Um, and this is just one of many tools, right? This is not gonna solve everything, but it's interesting that it's now being viewed more as a, a safety thing. And again, it's inexpensive. I really, really like that. Um, you know, and more public art is good for economic development. It's good for um, creating a sense of belonging. And it's good just for quality of life, right? That everyone who exists at any point in our city can enjoy it as it beautifies the city, which is something that's important to so many folks from all different backgrounds in our community. And I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. If that wasn't enough reason for us to support it, the community building aspect. I love, love, love that you've built in here some you know, grassroots, community-initiated aspects of this where folks can come to the city um, and say, hey, I have this idea. I hope that this catches on because I can imagine all types of individuals and organizations. I know I've talked about public art near in close proximity to schools and like that being youth led. I see so much, I know I've mentioned that with the, you know, with the utility box wraps, for example. I see potential for that here too as well. Um, and I can imagine, you know, all kinds of folks in the community getting excited about this. PTAs, you know, art, anyway. Um, 
That said, I think it's gonna take some time for folks to catch on, to be educated on what this is, to know that it's a thing. And so I want us to think about if we could do catalyst projects to get this going, specifically with the community initiated kind of aspect of it. I would like to see grants as part of it. We, it, you know, the memo said it's not that expensive. So I think this is something we can do to really build community um, build, you know, in, a, in a really positive way without too much money. Um, you know, let's ask maybe some ideas could be our youth council, our senior council, our, we've talked about our cultural arts commission. Um, you know, there are lots of different organizations that I can imagine that the city already interacts with that we could ask them to um, kind of help us with a catalyst project and work with um, folks in the community to get that started. Um, so I love it. I would like to see us, as I mentioned, a tiny bit more proactive with getting that started. Um, <clears throat> I also, as you mentioned, art and crosswalks doesn't necessarily need to be for a cause. There are lots of ways that we can um, have that separate from the cause. I do have just a question after I was on my soapbox for the past couple minutes. Thank you for humoring me there. Um, the, um, you mentioned the traffic safety um, related pavement marking section that curb extension would, would involve delineators. I know in the one picture from the city of Kirkland, those were the candlesticks. And the other picture, it was kind of hard to tell. Are there like, is that things like raised curbs, candlesticks, those types of things would always be involved with that? Delineators most likely would be, yes, the candlesticks that you're okay. referring to. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I also, I appreciate you mentioning the, um, the being mindful of pollution with the storm drain markings too. I just, I feel like I would need a little bit more information before I really support us painting right around the drains there. I understand we would take measures as far as as the actual installation was taking place with the paint, you know, like wet paint not going down the, the storm drains and that we would use non-toxic paint. Um, I also think about like long-term, it was acknowledged obviously that this should be in less, lower traffic areas, presumably because it's gonna, the paint's gonna wear off and I can imagine like paint chips being there, are these gonna wash down the storm drain? I would just need to better understand that before I fully support. I think it's an awesome idea and I just wanna make sure there weren't any unintended consequences as part of that, but great presentation, I'm really excited. Yeah, thank you thank for you. the input, that's really excellent. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, we're working on it, commencing the project now uh, in the sense of getting this input, we're gonna talk internally, we'll, we'll kind of hash out some of these ideas and then um, the actual implementation of a citywide program, I think the absolute earliest that could, that could happen is 25 potentially later, just given the, the staff workload and everything, so. Mayor, I don't think your mic is on. Great. Thank you. Oh, that makes a difference. Um, so beginning it in 2025 is, is very promising. So thank you. My, uh, I do want to acknowledge what Councilmember Tim Chisholm said about what is our process, and I do think we need to work through that. Um, as Councilmember Falcone said, there are tons of opportunities and, and community members and stakeholders that we could reach out for this beyond, uh, which I 
really appreciate the neighborhood safety program, but there's other opportunities. And my last thought is, I think we need to talk about uh, vandalism repair in a little more detail. Because um, yeah. I, I hate the idea of, oops, it's vandalized, we're just gonna let it go. There might be opportunities for whatever community stakeholder is involved to come back and repair it, something like that. So. Yeah, and that's a great point that uh, we did try to address a little bit of that in the memo in the sense that uh, we would want to address vandalism immediately in the sense of we'd have staff go out, our maintenance crews go out, take a look, um, and the idea would be uh, address the vandalism, whether that's neutral paint color or some other um, treatment to it, uh, but not necessarily uh, repair the whole installation. I think that would that would be a larger body of work, similar to um, pavement cutting. Uh, you know, if there's a utility or the city needs to cut into a road, uh, and it happens to be in, in a location where there is an art installation, um, I think there would be uh, kind of this understanding that we would do that work without necessarily having to repair all of that. So I think there are definitely considerations there for um, those types of situations. Um, but yeah, something that we can hash out in the development of the program for sure. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, thank you. All right. We are under time. Very well done. So I didn't do it. This concludes our study session for the evening. We will reconvene our regular city council meeting. We are back in session following a study session for updates on Cascade Water Alliance water supply negotiations, the Store to Shores Greenway project, and a decorative mar pavement markings program. Before we turn to honors and proclamations, I want to note that the council may consider a Goat Hill land use moratorium. If we do consider that issue tonight, it would be necessary for council to vote to amend our agenda to include that item as part of our business meeting. To introduce that topic, I want to call on the city manager. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, so as the council and the committee knows, the Goat Hill neighborhood uh, has some significant physical, geological, and environmental constraints. Uh, there are narrow roads, there's limited emergency access and landslide hazards. Um, it's become under increasing development pressure, and so we'd like the council to consider a temporary moratorium on permit applications to allow staff time to evaluate the life, health, and safety concerns proposed by development and to consider adoption of regulations to mitigate or minimize those concerns. We'd like to give the council a presentation tonight and a draft ordinance for their consideration, and so we would be looking for a motion to add a temporary moratorium ordinance as a business item 9A, and they would have a staff presentation at that time. Thank you, City Manager. Is there a motion to amend tonight's agenda to include consideration of an ordinance that would impose a temporary moratorium on the acceptance of applications for the review and or issuance of permits in the Goat Hill area? Second. All right. It's been moved by Councilmember Falcone, second by Councilmember Falcone, or I'm sorry, second by Councilmember Pascal. Um, all of those in favor say aye. 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 Are there any, is there any opposed? The motion carries. We'll add this item to our business agenda as item 9A. All right, thank you everyone. We are gonna now move on to our regular business honors and proclamations. Our next item is the Lunar New Year Proclamation. 
first, before we get started, I want to thank the Parks and Community Services uh, group for hosting a Lunar New Year celebration this Saturday. It was well attended, and I'm sure Councilmember Falcone will talk about it in our council reports. There is artwork in the lobby that was created during the Lunar New Year celebration, so I encourage everyone to take a look and uh, perhaps take some pictures of it. So, Councilmember Falcone is going to read the pro or gosh, can't get names straight tonight. <laughs> Councilmember Black is going to read the proclamation. Accepting the proclamation will be Amy Jew. English is a second language and naturalization program coordinator of the Chinese Information and Service Center, CIS. CIS is an organization that helps immigrants through King County achieve success in their new community. Welcome. Thank you for coming tonight. Nice to see you. Thank you. Uh, so tonight I will be reading a proclamation of the city of Kirkland, recognizing February 10th, 2024 as Lunar New Year in Kirkland. Before I get started, I did want to welcome um, a couple of my family members. <laughs> uh, my wife, Joanna, and my mother-in-law, Su Jen. Um, all right, I'll now read the proclamation. Whereas Lunar New Year is a significant cultural and celebratory event for many Asian communities around the world that celebrates the first new moon of the lunar calendar. And whereas this festivity is widely observed by various Asian cultures with each bringing their unique traditions and practices to the celebration. And whereas Lunar New Year is traditionally a time for family gatherings and embracing the hope of prosperity and good fortune in the year ahead. And whereas the city recognizes the importance of acknowledging and celebrating New Year to encourage a welcoming and belonging community and promoting a deeper understanding of cultural diversity and heritage. And whereas the city hosted its annual Lunar New Year celebration on February 3rd, last Saturday, which featured, a cultural, which featured cultural demonstrations and entertainment by the Seattle Chinese Arts Group, education about zodiac animals, and craft activities with dragon puppets and origami shapes. And whereas resources to learn about and engage in Lunar New Year celebrations and customs can be found on the city's website and through local community organizations. And whereas the city council has worked to demonstrate a deliberate and intentional effort to create a Kirkland where everyone belongs to the approval of resolutions R5240 in February of 2017 and R5434 in August 2020 and the adoption of a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging five-year roadmap in July 2022 that identifies several actions to ensure that Kirkland is a safe, inclusive, and welcoming place for all people. Now, therefore, Mayor Kelly Curtis, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim February 10th, 2024, as Lunar New Year in Kirkland and encourages all community members to learn about, participate in, and enjoy the vibrant cultural traditions associated with this celebration. Good, good, good evening, everyone. My name is Amy Zhu. Uh, I work for Chinese Information and Service Center. I'm the ESL and Naturalization Program Coordinator. Uh, I'm so happy to, he, to be here today with all the city of Kirk, uh, Kirkland. 
uh, uh, council member and the mayor and all the uh, staff here. It's my great privilege to receive the proclamation. Uh, thank you for the city of Kirkland in recognizing the Chinese Lunar New Year this year. So it's uh, symboli symbolized uh, the diversity, the equity, inclusion, and belonging for the city of uh, uh, Kirkland residents. So uh, on behalf of the community that Chinese Information and Service Center served, I would like to express our gratitude to the city of Kirkland uh, ongoing support and partnership. And thank you again for your hard working to make the uh, city of Kirkland a very, very welcoming city for all the residents to live here. Thank you so much again. Uh, 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 Bowrong 谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。谢谢。
Erica. Thank you, Mayor. So our special guest that is not able to join us tonight because she's feeling under the weather is Musuku Ikari Okada. And she's represented tonight here by Jeff Berkland, her grandson. And also she has family across the country who are watching now. So thank you so much for coming, Jeff. We appreciate it. Um, I am going to read this short bio that was written by Leslie Okada Roberts, um, uh, Musuku's oldest daughter. Musuku, as she likes to be called, a nisi, which, which uh, means second generation Japanese American, was born in Seattle on 21st and Yesler 98 years ago. She moved to California as a youngster with her family. When the war broke out, her family was scattered and placed in different internment camps, but she and her mother were sent to post in Arizona. Mutsu decided to study nursing and left camp to become a cadet nurse in Minneapolis, where she met and married Peter Okada. She joined her husband in Osaka, Japan during the occupation. They moved to Kirkland in 1980 and have been here ever since. Mutsu has a third degree black belt in Aikido and is beloved by five children, 11 grandchildren, and 17 great-grandchildren. There's nowhere else she would rather be than in Kirkland. Um, let's give her a round of applause and celebration. So I'm going to read a proclamation recognizing February 19th, 2024 as Day of Remembrance of Japanese American Incarceration during World War II in Kirkland. Whereas on February 19th, 1942, shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order Number 9066, which authorized the forced evacuation and incarceration of thousands of loyal United States citizens because of their Japanese ancestry. And whereas other countries followed the United States in issuing similar orders, including Canada, Mexico, Peru, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina. And whereas on May 20th, 1942, approximately 60 Japanese American families from Bellevue boarded a train in Kirkland bound for a relocation center in Tool Lake in Northern California. And whereas over two and a half years from 1942 to 1945, the U.S. government removed Japanese Americans from their homes on the West Coast from the states of California, Washington, and Oregon and Alaska Territory without a trial or due process, and many unable to inform their families, forcing them into internment camps in unfamiliar lands in the states of Montana, New Mexico, and North Dakota. And whereas approximately 7,390 Americans of Japanese descent from, the, from Western Washington and Alaska were forcibly relocated in, and incarcerated in concentration camps. And whereas uprooted from their lives and livelihoods, they endured miserable conditions and treatment by military guards. And whereas despite these experiences, thousands of young Japanese American men enlisted in the US Armed Forces, bravely fighting to defend the nation that was abridging their own freedoms at home. 
And whereas, we honor their sacrifice as well as the resilience that made it possible for thousands of Japanese American families to reclaim and rebuild their lives after the war. And whereas the US government in 1988 admitted that the forced evacuation and incarceration of Japanese American families was based on race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of a political leadership. And whereas the stain on our history should remind us to always stand up for our fellow Americans and that acknowledgement of past injustices can help bring people together around a recommitment to the shared values in our country of civil rights and civil liberties. And whereas the city council has worked to demonstrate a deliberate and intentional effort to create a Kirkland where everyone belongs through the approval of resolutions R5240 in February of 2017 and R5434 in August 2020 and the adoption of a diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging five-year roadmap in July 2022 that identifies several actions to ensure that Kirkland is a safe, inclusive and welcoming place for all people. Now, therefore, Mayor Penny, uh, I'm sorry, oh my, <laughs> Mayor Kelly Curtis, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim February 19th, 2024 as a day of remembrance of Japanese American incarceration during World War II in Kirkland and calls upon the Kirkland community to join in the solemn remembrance of the issuance of Executive Order 9066 in 1942 and to commemorate the rescission of that same order on February 19th, 1976. Thank you. That was, that was very tough to read. Do you, want, do you have some, you want to say a few words? No, just, just, yeah. I'm just going to keep this nice and sweet and short. Um, I'm honored to you know, accept this. Uh, I'm on behalf of my grandmother. Uh, she would have loved to be here. Um, but of course, she called about an hour ago and she wasn't feeling, she was feeling ill. So um, she felt it best to be at home. Um, with her youngest uh, son, and he's been taking care of her for years now. Um, but I know she'd be uh, honored to, to be here. Didn't think I'd get emotional. Um, well, thank you. Um, I know she's, she's proud and uh, Thank you for this recognition and proclamation. I can't say this in Japanese, I'm sorry. Thank you, everyone, for your time and attention. Um, proclamations are very important to all of us. So now we're moving on to communications. This is the time in our meeting where we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none scheduled this evening. Please relimit your marks to three minutes and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of an issue. If you're present in person or virtually and would like to address the council under this items for the audience period, 
please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order of which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting. We are happy you are here. We ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please do not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone, as proven earlier, to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints and feel included regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are not allowed in council chambers during our meetings regardless of content. Before, oops, I think we're ready. City Clerk. Mayor, we have eight people signed up to speak, and the first three are Miriam Larson, Joe Chulik, and Andrea Thompson. Ms. Larson. Hello, my name is Miriam Larson. I'm a resident of Goat Hill. I'm also an architect who works in the area, and so I'm familiar with development and sensitivity to the environment. My family and I have lived on Goat Hill for 10 years, and we love our part of Kirkland deeply. There is a beautiful old growth forest at the end of our street with trails that many residents use. In the winter, a, neighborhood, a neighbor decorates one of the trees with ornaments so that hikers can enjoy holiday cheer. In springtime, we marvel at the bird song and tiny white flowers peeping up through new greenery. In the summer, the forest is a beautiful shady place echoing with the calls of children. And in the fall, the trees are a symphony of golden red, indicating that resident barred owls will soon call to us in the night. There are four parcels at the end of our road that recently sold to a developer. We have been trying for several years to prevent this sale. These parcels allow children to walk to the local elementary school. They allow residents access to Juanita Heights Park. And most importantly, they are home to old growth trees and many species of animals. Some of you came to see the forest parcels last summer. After viewing the land, you were able to put a stop to a proposed 16-house development. Neighbors banded together in pledging money to help buy the properties with the city, and we were told that the land would be preserved. Unfortunately, this deal fell through, and the developer is currently trying to obtain approval to clear this pristine piece of forest. We have submitted a petition with 347 signatures attesting to many people's feelings about the development. Codes and rules are born out of necessity, out of situations where, in retrospect, something shouldn't have been built the way it was, or in the worst cases, something that led to tragedy and environmental collapse. I have worked with city staff to change the rules of construction on Goat Hill and to recognize that it is a separate entity from other neighborhoods in its fragility and lack of access. Clearing these parcels for homes will have a tremendously negative effect. We are already seeing the impact that other approved developments are having. Last week, we were walking our dog at the top of Goat Hill. We heard the neighborhood eagles above and looked up to see them flying over a site that had been cleared several hours previously. We realized that the eagles were circling dead space in the sky where their nest had been. Their tree was collateral damage. Thinking about this happening to the forest at the end of our road is heartbreaking. For our neighborhood and for the people that have signed our petition, we ask you to consider our story. For the eagles, the bobcats, and the deer, we ask you to consider our story. For the health and clean water of Lake Washington, we ask you to consider our story. 
You have the power to determine the fate of our city. We know that you encourage green space preservation and that you have done much work already. Perhaps it's too late for us, but if this plea changes one line of code regarding old growth forest or one mind about how much development should be allowed in fragile neighborhoods such as ours, then it has not been a waste. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Mr. Cholka? Mr. Chulik is virtual. Wasn't close. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. You can go ahead. Hi, my name is Joe Chulik. I'm a resident of Kirkland for the last 14 years. Today, I'd like to discuss short-term rentals, section 7.02.300 in the Kirkland Municipal Code. Uh, I have a neighbor that's been renting short-term uh, for a number of years. He's not lived in the home for more than 10 days and nine years. I've worked with the uh, code department on uh, opening up um, enforcement uh, in the summer. However, six months later, licensing is still awaiting responses to um, items that they're trying to collect in terms of days rented from VRBO or his response. Uh, this individual should not be able to rent short-term as they don't live in the home for 245 days, full stop. The overarching theme, as the city continues to zone for more density, many investors will continue to buy homes and short-term rent on Airbnb or VRBO. This isn't creating more housing, but putting more money in investors' pockets and visitors that are staying for short-term uh, rentals and not long-term stays. A quick search on VRB shows 300 active homes for rent on VRBO now in Kirkland. I would like the city to um, have some enforcement abilities on these short-term rentals and to figure out how the best way to ensure that our city doesn't become uh, overrun with uh, folks that are just kind of coming in and out and, and driving tax revenue, but more disturbance. I would like to live in a residential area, not a city center with a hotel next door. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your concerns. If you would like to email City Council, we can follow up with you directly. Great. And the City Council email I can find on the website, correct? It's citycouncil at kirklandwa.gov. Thank you very much, Mayor. Thank you. Ms. Thompson. And following Andrea Thompson will be Susan Papalardo, Tristan McKay, and Jenny Jaeger. Go ahead. Hi, good evening. Um, I had written an email in January 10th of this year, and I just wanted to follow up to see if you guys had received it, but I basically wanted to reread the letter just so everyone to hear it. So I'm writing to express my concerns over the sale of multiple parcels at the top of Goat Hill and the potential ensuing development that will greatly impact the safety and well-being of all Goat Hill residents and potentially all the residents immediately above and below this project. As you may or may not know, the property had been for sale for well over 25 years. The extremely sloped parcels contained wetlands and, nestled and were nestled directly within a red landslide zone. Thanks to efforts managed by the Finhill Neighborhood Alliance and Goat Hill Neighbors, the property was success some of the property was successfully sold um, to the City of Kirkland to expand Juanita Heights Park in 2018. Four plots remained, and we were hopeful 
that these following plots would also be sold and enlarged Juanita Heights Park. Um, but this was not to be. Um, in June, we were told that um, things were looking hopeful and development looked difficult, and the city had mandated that the road that would need to be built through part of Juanita Heights Park to support the development would not be allowed due to community concerns over the park. But apparently, this was not the deterrent we anticipated, and the parcels closed at the end of December. I'm writing to express my, express my frustration and fear. The current road is at a maximum. The one-way road with two very steep switchbacks is crumbling. On a monthly basis, construction vehicles, delivery trucks, cement trucks, and even the city garbage trucks become stuck and block our only way off the hill. One recent occurrence of this blocked the top of the road for over two hours. If there had been any sort of medical emergency, EMS would have been unable to access the houses at the top, and this is unacceptable. Residents live, lives are at stake, and I can think of no other neighborhood in Kirkland that faces this threat. Even the construction of one house is painful, but we tolerate it, understanding that people have the right to build their homes. But multi-house projects are just not doable at this point in time on Goat Hill. I believe that there is a purpose to government oversight, and this is exactly the opportunity that the city is needed for. They must help maintain resident safety while managing development goals. I've been told over the years that Goat Hill Road cannot be expanded without great cost to the city. I understand, but is a human life worth less? The road can, safety cannot allow the construction of multi-home projects without an additional option. It's irresponsible of the city council to allow this project to be approved. Maybe some of you came on our walk a couple years ago and saw the road. I would like to invite you to come again, walk the road, see the condition, and also view the parcels to witness what is being proposed at this point in time. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Ms. Thompson. And you want to stay for our business meeting because we'll be discussing yeah, this topic. All right, Ms. Papalardo. Good evening, Mayor Curtis and Deputy Mayor Arnold and Council Members. My name is Susan Papalardo, and I'm, tonight I'm addressing you as a Kirkland resident, a PFAC member, and the co-founder and president of Splash Forward. Our Splash Forward mission is to support new public aquatic facilities and programs in our region that expand access to aquatics. Tonight you'll be receiving feedback from the PFAC Park Board Youth Council on Prop 1 and possible next steps. You will also be reviewing updates to the post-ballot measure community survey. As the pro campaign chair, I've shared input with you after the November 23 election through the PFEC and throughout the survey development. I shared feedback yesterday on the survey updates. Thank you to staff and all involved in the survey development. I greatly appreciate the inclusion of supportive statements, better worded questions to inform the respondent, and questions that will help refine future aquatic facility proposal, that, including what residents value and prioritize in a new facility. I'm here tonight to voice my support for ongoing community engagement and to continue the hard work to determine a proposal that meets the needs of the community, fits within current aquatic facility ecosystem, and then meets the community's appetite for public support. As I've previously shared, it will be the partnerships, equity and affordability solutions, and community engagement that will create success for residents. Whether the timing is right for a ballot measure this year is to be determined, but I do know that our community has been waiting over 13 years for a new facility and we're drastically underserving our needs with facilities that are over 50 years old. Splash Forward will act, is actively supporting the facilitation and engagement in partnership with the Lake Washington School District, Wave Aquatics, and the city. 
Understanding how school district usage and community programming fits within the existing Juanita High School pool and, an, and a new public aquatic facility will inform design and decision making as well as foster partnerships. Splashboard is supporting the city's parks and community service staff in developing a facility proposal with the support of our aquatics consultant, Isaac Sports Group, which has expertise in facility development, operations, and programming. Our work is based off the APSIS feasibility study and will include facility scope, components, size, operations, and cost of a 40,000 square foot proposal so council can make the most informed decisions at your March 1st council retreat. Building new public aquatic facilities is complex, but complexity should not be a barrier. I agree with Councilmember Black that a city should actively learn from outcomes to understand plausible solutions to critical infrastructure problems facing the city. I encourage you to be champions for the benefits for how a public aquatic facility will serve our community. We build community when we have community places. If our leaders don't champion the value of social infrastructure, then it's simply much harder to, to build them. As a nonprofit that's gone all in to support new public facilities, the answer to overcoming complexity is partnerships and aquatic thought leadership that enables the best decisions. I look forward to hearing the survey's results and supporting the city's next steps to foster engagement partnerships in a day when we can realize programs where every second grader learns to swim and our communities are healthier, safer, and more connected. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. McKay. Tristan McKay is the next speaker, followed by Jenny Jager and Dan Marin. I apologize, Tristan. Go ahead. Hello. I want to speak today concerning the topic of water supply preparedness and environmental responsibility. A few years ago, MIT developed a new passive process for water desalination that removes the salt-clogging issue that faces expensive filtration-based desalination methods. Uh, the method supposedly cuts the cost for desalination to lower than that of normal water treatment and uh, far below the traditional cost of water desalination. The best part is the process doesn't use new technology or new materials. It changes the process of how the water flows. This allows slightly higher salinity water to flow away from the filter so that it doesn't get clogged, which reduces maintenance costs and material costs. That only slightly higher salinity water then flows back into the ocean rather than high concentrations of salinity. And that makes the process much more environmentally friendly. Um, I would ask that the council in the future when considering um, possible solutions to water supply issues, they consider such um, new technologies because they are more affordable and more environmentally friendly. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Yeager. Greetings, council members, uh, Madam Mayor and Deputy Mayor. Um, my name is Jenny Yeager, and I'm here to support crosswalk option two, which puts the crosswalk at the intersection of 100th and 140th. Um, I'm here to speak for pedestrian safety, especially for my two teenage children who both use transit to get to work. <clears throat> my family lives on the east end of Northeast 140th Street. My son, who can't speak here tonight due to being in class right now, um, is a heavy transit user. He has to walk across 100s frequently to catch the southbound bus to get to work, and he's often in a hurry to do so. 
um, soon due to the widening of 100th. Traffic will be faster moving than ever. And I know my teenagers. I know that sometimes they are not going to walk half a block extra twice to use a crosswalk that is out of line with where they need to go. Evidence shows that many other pedestrians will also behave this way. It is human nature to walk, uh, to want to take the shortest path, <clears throat> uh, especially when you are rushed or tired or carrying a heavy bag. There is a difference between inconveniencing drivers and inconveniencing pedestrians. For drivers, it's just annoying. For pedestrians, it is annoying and sometimes deadly. So for safety's sake, please support option two, place the crosswalk at the intersection where it will be in line where pedestrians want to and sometimes will cross regardless of whether there is a crosswalk there. Thank you. Thank you. City Clerk, who is next? We have additional signed up speakers. The next the next person signed up to speak is Dan Marin, virtually, but we don't see him in the audience. Um, following, oh, he's just joining, great. Following Dan are Alex Zimmerman, Jim Adkisson, Mitzi Beffy, and Derek Shogan. Okay, you gave me the last two quick, too quickly, so I'll come back to you. Uh, Mr. Marin. Mr. Marin, are you with us? How's it look? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, can you hear me now? We can. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you, Council. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak tonight. I'm calling. Uh, and to express some concerns with the increased density in our low density residential neighborhoods. I'm from South Rose Hill, um, specifically um, multiple units on single parcels. Um, so this would be a situation where there are, there are no uh, short flats or subdivisions proposed, but rather a single home is knocked down and two or three units uh, replace that home on the same parcel. Uh, so the public is not notified. Um, I was, I'm asking for well, what I'm not asking for is a policy discussion around middle housing or infill density. I actually support the council's previous positions on encouraging increased density in our low density residential neighborhoods and uh, uh, multiple units on the same parcel. Uh, basically what I'd like uh, from the council in the near future, if you could, is to do a check-in with our residents in our low density residential neighborhoods like South Rose Hill and basically ask the question, how is this going? Because since 2020, the city has uh, actively courted and encouraged uh, development of ADUs and cottage housing. I think there are outstanding results in some situations and very bad results in others around the impact uh, it's having on the neighbors and the neighborhoods. Um, if there's any way to address uh, or gather information so that uh, adjustments can be made uh, and responsiveness from the from the city to address some of these with zoning code changes or whatnot, I'd be really uh, 
interested in having the council do that. And I promised to follow up with some emails to the city council for some examples of what is and what is not working. And I have been in touch with the planning and building department, but uh, just wanted to put that on your radar. And I thank you very much again for the opportunity to speak. Thank you very much. We appreciate your input. Um, Mr. Zimmerman. Yeah, I'm lucky. I too many people speak today. It's very good. So people wake up. It's very important. Zihail, my daughter, them Nazi Hunter. Yeah, my name is Alex Zimmerman, and I will speak about something what is new era in America, and I will explain to you detail. Yeah, this is very critical and very important. So Bellevue Council elect uh, Iranian Muslim uh, Muhammad Malakotian to Consul, it's okay, I go for election too, no problem. But they make him a deputy mayor. The situation absolutely different right now. It's a critical, it's, it's exactly what is new era in America. Number one, he worked for Amazon. So government right now support corporation officially. This is a pure fascism. This is not my fascism, this come from, what is this guy from Italy? Oh, Mussolini. Yeah, exactly. This is number one. But this fascism is very interesting because it has two different faces. Yes. When they appoint him, you know what is mean, Iranian Muslim, for deputy mayor, they show that they hate Jewish people. So this pure government anti-Semitism, official government anti-Semitism, similar to Soviet Union, what they have experienced, my family have from German Nazi. It's number two. And number three is absolutely critical and idiotic. They approve this when we have a war with Iran. In every week, American people dying from Iranian racket. If this can come to a big problem, we talk about this every day right now. So what do they show? So they support us enemy? In all civilized countries, when you support enemy, you go, possibly go to jail or be executed. They're doing this officially. And this is very interesting and critical because when I want to speak, they cut me, block me, never give me chance to ever speak. What does this show? They show so they are number one American enemy. They Jewish enemy, they Christian enemy, they the enemy of America in American. Everybody quiet about this. Every time what is I'm talking about this, everybody look normal. This exactly why happened? Because we have democratic mafia junta who control us for 40 years. It exactly can happen only for one particular reason. 40 years, we have a total control of junta. 90% people never vote for them. You understand what this means? It's simple statistic. In Bellevue, for example, 150,000, 135,000 never vote, vote for them. You know what this means? It's 10% only support this. It's the same percentage as they have German Nazi in Germany, in Soviet Communists, in Soviet Union. You understand about talking, guys? 40 years we have a fascism, official fascism, and people in, in country, in state Washington, accept this for 40 years. It's a nightmare. I cannot understand this. So I speak right now to everybody who not pure freaking idiot. Mr. Zimmerman, Stand your up. time is up. It's time up? Thank you very much. <laughs> Mayor, I'm sorry, I made an, a mistake. We have two people in the chamber who are signed up ahead of our 
virtual audience, and they are David Goff and Vince Campos. Mr. Goff. Good evening, Council, and thank you so much for allowing my voice to be heard and the time and effort that you all put in by being here tonight, sacrifices you make to, you know, help Kirkland be a better place to live. I live at 116th Street South in Kirkland. I'm right adjacent to the SRM uh, Google development, their campus there. Adjacent to me is a piece of property called 112 6th Street South that the city purchased about six months ago for a million dollars. This property has been known to have a critical environment concern within it for the last, I don't know, the family that owned it previously, the Fisk, owned that whole block prior to 6th Avenue even being a through street. But Jim Fisk could never build on that property because of the environmental controls or concerns, excuse me. So the city buys it. They don't do any assessment of the critical environment. They don't do classification of the stream. They don't do anything to justify why we're going to spend a million dollars of taxpayers' money to buy a piece of property that has a known critical environment issue and describe what those are and what are going to be the limitations of that property as it relates to spending our tax money to buy it. So the city buys it. They're going to turn it into a park. They come out. They don't have to get a permit. They don't have to do a critical environments review because Kirkland can act as a general contractor, do an inventory of their equipment and their people. They can do anything, right? But they don't have to go through the same process I would as a resident and a taxpayer of Kirkland. Because as soon as I try to do something on my adjacent property, I'm trying to build a mother-in-law's apartment over my garage that was fully permitted in 2014. Ten years later, I can't do that project without critical environment assessment classification stream. That's $15,000. I can't let the 400 square foot of impervious roofing that I'm putting on in my ADU go down the pipe because I have to come up with a water retention plan. That cost me $15,000. I can't utilize Station 22, my brand new fire department, in the brand new fire hydrant that my neighbor across the street had installed to develop his property to put out a fire in my precious ADU, right? And so it's like, how do you even budget for this? But let's get back to, one, I know this is a complicated issue, but how does the city buy a piece of property that has a known critical environment issue without fully vetting that, classifying the stream, and making darn certain they understand exactly what they're getting into? How does the city show up out there, take out the old goat trees, cut down things, take out the brush, put up a fence, and then act like, oh, there's water running through our property. That's crazy. But I can't build an ADU 100 feet away without having a biologist come out and spend $15,000 to tell them what's going on in this special, special little stream of theirs. I know a lot of people don't come to work anymore, but maybe they could drive up to 112 6th Avenue South and look at that property. I'm sorry. And if I... for a moment you believe that they're not doing full property development. Thank you. A joke. A joke. The bar you hold us to is here. You don't have a bar. Mr. Campos. Following Mr. Campos, we have seven audience members with their hands raised, but they have not signed up to speak. Mr. Campos, we hold one second. Um, they are required to sign up to speak. All right, thank you. Proceed. Okay, uh, my name is Vince Campos. If you don't know, I was on the PFET committee and I was on the con to Prop 1, and I wrote the website, the con website, 
Um, but I'm here to s show my support for the 30-year bond, $66 a year proposal that we saw. Um, my retired neighbors couldn't afford Prop 1. Several of them told me that. But I think the $66 a year would not be too much of a burden for them. It's less than a quarter of the cost. And I think you could get to, I talked to many people during the Prop 1 campaign, I think you could get to 60% for a bond. I just wanted to give the reasons I, why I think you could. Um, it's not a permanent tax increase, and that resonated with many people. I think that would sway many voters. Uh, the $66 is just so much less than 280. It seems like less. I think that would sway many people. And no one would be on a con committee. There'd be no con statement, no, web, no signs around town. I think that would go a long way toward uh, proving that. Um, it's a transparent, straightforward funding, a bond to pay for the pool. I think the, the, the funding swap with a general fund turned off a lot of people. That wouldn't be there. Um, I would try to help. I would support this, the 30-year bond, $66 a year proposal. You know, I'd go on social media saying I was on the con committee for Prop 1, but I support this. I think that might sway some people. Um, also wanted to add that if you partnered with the Y, from what I heard, that would go a long way. They have a lot of goodwill in the community. A lot of people were saying you know, that the vote was not against the city, it was for the Y. Um, the idea of a Y-run pool to many moderate income people just feels like a community efficient operation where pool and rec center, that sounds like a sports club that moderate income people don't have memberships to. Um, so I think, I think you would get to the 60% to the for a 30-year bond for a pool. Um, I would ask that you keep, recommend that you keep the message very simple, that it would be for swimming lessons for kids, that for many people that's an essential public safety need that's worthy of tax money. Um, but from what I heard, the people I talked to, I wouldn't talk about being for recreational swimming, swim teams, a lot of people feel like that's not an essential service. They'll, those people are going to vote for it anyway. So uh, a lot of people were against the complexity, all the items they saw. But many people, I think, would vote for um, a facility so our kids could have swim lessons. Um, I think you could get 60% with a 30-year bond for that one. So I just want to show my support of that. But OK, thank you for your time. Thank you. And I just want to thank you and Ms. Papalardo for serving on nine months of PFAC. Your input has been really important to all of us. Mayor, we've had two more on-site sign-ups. We have Kurt Dresner next and then Christy Berry. Mr. Dresner. Hi. Uh, my name is Kurt Dresner. I've lived in Kirkland for a while now. Uh, I didn't actually prepare to speak when I when I came to the meeting tonight. I'm just I'm speaking in response, honestly, to a couple of things that I've heard that just it screams at me. Um, on the one hand, we have some folks very rightly concerned about our natural resources and our forest, and you know you can go look at Google Maps and you can see that that is a forest that should be part of the park, like it's right there. And on the other hand, we have folks saying stop increasing density in my neighborhood. And like these are inextricably linked. The reason we have so much development pressure on that pristine forest is because we don't have enough density elsewhere. And so I'm not giving you any information you don't already have. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know or you wouldn't already think that I would get up here to say, 
but I just can't help myself. I have to say it. <laughs> um, we can't think of these things individually. These issues are inextricably linked. And the, the more we want to protect our, our natural resources and our, and our forests, the more we have to be willing to build more density in the places where we've already cleared those forests. And that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Berry. Apologies, Mayor. Uh, Christy Berry has now shifted from the virtual audience to a sign-up. Um, so the next speaker is actually uh, Mitzi Beffy. Is Mitzi virtual? Yes. And have they? And has signed up. All right. We will proceed. Hi, can you guys hear me? We can. Phenomenal. My name is Mitzi Bapay. Um, My goodness. <laughs> that I wanted to actually speak. That man who spoke in person, I believe his name was Mr. Zimmerman. I just want to say, seek Heil, brother. Okay, I sincerely hope stop you... stop this now. Thank you. We have other audience. What's wrong with seek Heil? Why can he say it, but I can't? Thank you. We have other audience members who have also um, signed up, and they are. Oh, Bill Barber. Madam Mayor. Hello, Council. Can you hear me? We can. Hello, thank you for your time. My name is Phil Barber. I'm a journalist with the Press Democrat. I also wanted to address uh, Mr. Zimmerman, who appeared. You may stop this now. City Attorney. Yeah, Madam Mayor, I want to just um, offer that you would have the authority to uh, uh, close items from, from the audience. That was going to be my yeah. next move. So we are now closing items from the audience. I don't think this will be productive any further. Uh, before continuing, I do want to offer a comment on behalf of City Council. Uh, frequently, we hear statements and during items of the audience that are hurtful or offensive. The Council does not condone those statements. Uh, we are committed to making Kirkland a safe, inclusive, and welcoming place for everyone. At the same time, items for the audience does provide opportunities for community members to express their views to council, regardless of content. So I thank everyone for their patience tonight. And Madam Mayor, just one, one last comment by way of explanation under uh, section 3.10 of the council's policies and procedures, the, you as the presiding officer have the authority to, to direct the removal of an individual or individuals who, uh, from a council meeting in any form, uh, participated on any basis, uh, that has engaged in speech or conduct that has actually disrupted, disturbed, or impeded the orderly conduct of the meeting. Thank you, City Attorney. All right. We are now moving on to the next item in communications, which is petitions, and we have received a petition. 
Um, city manager, do you want to set this up for us? I do. So uh, we don't get petitions that often, so I just want to remind council that uh, when you receive the petition under your council procedures, you have three options. Um, option one is to accept the petition and refer to the staff for further study. Um, excuse me, accept it for further study. Option two, accept and refer to the staff. Or option three, accept it and determine that no further action is needed. Um, because the petition items are also similar to the uh, issues that staff wants to talk to you about with respect to Goat Hill and a temporary moratorium, our recommendation to staff is you uh, do a motion to do option one, dispose of the petition, which is accept the petition for further study. And should you make a decision on the temporary moratorium, we'd be evaluating all the issues that are also raised in the petition. Uh, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, I would like to start us off by uh, getting a motion on the table. Uh, I move to accept the petition for further study. Second. It has been moved by Councilmember Black and seconded by Councilmember Sweet to accept the petition for further study. Um, all those in favor, please say aye. Where we have discussion. Oops. Sure. Thank you. In order. Thank you. Um, this is... What is the period of time? 60 days. Um, and um, I, I just wanted to comment that I drove this. I had some concerns um, about the terrain there, the accessibility of getting on and off Goat Hill. And I just wanted to make a comment that after, I heard some people speak on the mic. I think some of the things they said misrepresented what council has actually done and hasn't done yet and I just wanted to say that after driving that terrain I do have some concerns and I would like further study thank you thank you Councilmember Tim Chisholm anybody else have comments all right uh, the vote is on the motion to accept it and refer this petition for further study all those in favor please say aye aye aye, aye. Any, aye. thank you Deputy Mayor any opposed the motion carries, thank you. All right, we are moving to the consent calendar. Uh, before we have a motion, I would like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to present audit of accounts and to highlight the proclamation we have on the consent calendar. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $6,243,470.01 and bills in the amount of 12 million $12,936,084.25. Also on our consent calendar, the mayor on behalf of the council proclaims February as Black History Month in Kirkland. This proclamation celebrates the extraordinary achievements and contributions made by black people to the social, artistic, cultural, political, economic, spiritual, and natural, national advancement in the United States and beyond. Throughout this month, the city will post to social media various stories featuring local black leaders to commemorate the countless contributions to our region, our nation, and the world. And there's more information included in our packet. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. Is there a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Falcone, second by Councilmember uh, Sweet. <laughs> Almost. Called you Councilmember Mayor. Um, uh, because the calendar includes ordinances, uh, our vote will be by roll call. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Tim Chisholm. 
Here. Councilmember Black. Oh. oh, point of order. <laughs> yes. Councilmember Black. Yes. Councilmember Sweet. Yes. Councilmember Falcone. Sorry. Yes. Councilmember Pascal. Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Yes. Mayor Curtis. Yes. All right. The cons consent calendar is approved. We are now moving to. We are finally at our business items. So, and Adam Weinstein is ready to roll. So, um, I'm looking for my notes. We are calling this item 9A, and this is the Goat Hill Moratorium. City Manager. Yes, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So, um, as we added this to the council agenda, I just want to do a brief introduction. Uh, the city, we are always. Uh, very cautious about doing moratoriums. That's why they're temporary moratoriums, and we try to do them very rarely. Uh, we did feel the issues that we're developing on Goat Hill were significant enough that we wanted to bring this option to the council for consideration tonight. I'm here to provide you with an overview. That is our planning and building director, Adam Weinstein, who's going to give you an overview of why the moratorium and what the ordinance uh, itself has, and then we'll be looking for council action. We also have Stephanie Kroll, our senior deputy assistant attorney, here to answer questions from the legal standpoint. Great. All right, good evening, Mayor Curtis, Deputy Mayor Arnold, um, and council members. So as the city manager mentioned, yeah, here to bring you a recommendation on the moratorium on Goat Hill. Um, it's a very short presentation. We just have seven slides tonight. Um, <clears throat> as the city manager mentioned, yes, we have um, the city attorney's office ready to answer questions as well. All right. Uh, I think you all know where Goat Hill is. Um, you've probably been there many times. It's 66 acres. Um, it was annexed into Kirkland in 2011. Um, fantastic views of the lake. Um, the area has developed organically over time, so housing has been added to the area um, over a period of years. Um, so, you know, lovely place to live. Um, very difficult to get in and out of. Um, the hazards um, and the development constraints in the neighborhood are very well known to us. 97% um, of, um, of the area that we consider Goat Hill consists of moderate to high landslide hazards, as shown on this map. Um, those crosshatched areas are, um, head are head scarps, which are um, basically the tops of landslides. So you can see this is a very um, uh, seismically um, unstable area. Um, this, I think, is um, northeast um, 118th place looking uphill. Um, there are only two main access points into the neighborhood. Um, the streets are very twisty and steep. Um, they don't, many of them don't adhere to current street standards that the city has. Also, infrastructure like stormwater infrastructure is um, also substandard in a lot of the hill. When you drive around the neighborhood, you see, you know, some, in some cases, ditches on the sides of the road that are conveying stormwater. Um, so our knowledge of development constraints on Goat Hill is not new. It's something that we've been studying for a long period of time, um, ever since we, we annexed the neighborhood into the city. Um, we've done several things to mitigate the impacts of development over the years, which are shown on the slide. Um, we've, as one of the commenters mentioned earlier, we've established um, special construction period uh, traffic management procedures and rules for Goat Hill construction. We've constructed and are constructing new stormwater infrastructure. Um, back in 2018, the council adopted new geologic hazard regulations that were citywide, but um, Goat Hill was one of the places that we studied quite a bit um, as part of that analysis. And we used our experience in Goat Hill and other steep parts of the city to base our geologic hazard regulations. 
Um, in 2022, we adopted um, new Goat Hill-specific SEPA standards so that if you're building five or more dwelling units on Goat Hill, you have to do SEPA analysis, um, unlike the rest of the city where the threshold is 20 units. Um, and then I don't have this on the slide, but I should have mentioned this. We're also, we've also bought open space on Goat Hill as well to protect um, certain parts of it from development. But problems and concerns still exist um, on Goat Hill, so we think it is time to take a a uh, deeper look at the types of development that can happen on Goat Hill and how development happens. And that deeper look is um, called a moratorium in this case. Um, a moratorium is something that is authorized by state law, as we discussed in your staff memo. Um, I want to make really clear, um, especially to folks in the audience, that a moratorium is not a permanent ban on development. Um, just a pause in development so that we can study development um, issues and environmental issues in more detail. They can last for up to six months, um, and they can be extended. They can also be retracted if you're done with the work earlier. Um, and we'd very much like this one to, to last for six months. I think we have done a lot of study already in Goat Hill, and we're hopeful that we can narrow the focus of the study and um, the pursuant um, code amendments. So. The moratorium that we're proposing would extend from today, if the council adopts it, um, until August 6. Just wanted to say a couple of words about how focused this moratorium would be. We really um, are recommending to focus it just on the construction of new dwelling units. We want to ensure that infrastructure projects, which uh, some of which are intended to mitigate the environmental constraints on Goat Hill, can continue. And we also don't think that um, things like permits for remodels or plumbing permits or electrical permits are really contributing to the challenges on Goat Hill right now, at least in any substantive way. So um, this slide lists the things that we'll study. Again, nothing surprising here. We'll study um, critical areas constraints. We'll study access. We'll study emergency vehicle access as well, um, and then other environmental and development issues. Um, and then at the, the bottom of the slide just identifies some of the types of code amendments that we'll be wanting to look at as part of the moratorium. So changes to construction period requirements, like the ones that we already have related to construction traffic, um, requirements for roadway improvements, um, and then also ch obviously changes to development allowances um, on Goat Hill, how much you can build and what that building needs to look like. Um, lastly, um, this is the last slide, uh, just next steps. We are recommending adoption of this ordinance so that we can initiate additional study of um, Goat Hill. Um, if you adopt the ordinance tonight, we'll come back to you with a scope of work um, and a public hearing and get some additional public comment on the issue. Um, and that will happen sometime in the next six months. Um, and then, yeah, just lastly, as I mentioned before, there's already a lot that we know about Goat Hill. We've done many geotechnical studies on the Hill. We've done many critical area studies. We have lots of engineering reports for construction on, on Goat Hill. So we will very much aim for the scope of work to be focused, um, along with any um, code amendments. And we very much look forward to your thoughts on the scope of work, if and when we bring it back to you. Um, and with that, that closes the, um, the slideshow. I'm happy to answer questions. Does anybody uh, have any questions? Uh, real quick. City manager. Yeah, Adam, could you clarify the impact this might have on if someone's already in construction or have already received a permit? Yeah, so, yeah, the city manager is talking about the uh, vesting the vesting issue. So, basically, this moratorium would not affect permits um, which have been um, 
uh, com complete building permit applications that have already been submitted. So if somebody has submitted a complete building permit application for a dwelling unit or anything else, that project would allow be allowed to move forward during the moratorium. This is really only capturing um, permits for new dwelling units that have not yet vested with the city. So a complete building permit application has not yet been submitted as of the adoption of the moratorium. Thanks. That's helpful. Yeah. Councilman Pascal. Yeah, a question, question, Adam. Thank you for, for being here tonight. Uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, that you'd be developing a scope of work on what to look at. Now, well, that's, you said it may come before council or it may not. I'd be interested in, in at least uh, having an opportunity to comment on it. Uh, but I think more importantly, make sure that the community has a chance to provide input on it, right? And so how would that work? How do you see that working? Yeah, thanks for the uh, chance to clarify. We would definitely bring you back the scope of work for the study, and we would probably do that at the same time when we bring um, come back for a public hearing. So the scope of work would likely be elaborated on and described in the staff report that would accompany the, um, uh, the public hearing, basically. And so we'd outline the scope of work in that, at least a tentative scope of work in that, and then um, we'd get feedback from you at that meeting, and we would also get feedback from the public at that meeting. And then the, the second question was just around, uh, it's interesting that a few Goat Hill neighbors are here and just happened to walk in to hear this moratorium, didn't know that it was occurring tonight. Um, but I think many of the neighbors are gonna want to be aware of this. So what's our plan on making sure, you know, all the property owners are aware of the act? Yes, so we've already started talking about this. We will definitely figure out a communication that is broadcast to Goat Hill, um, and probably surround, uh, surrounding areas as well. We will also um, almost certainly send uh, communication out to our development listserv as well so that developers can be apprised of that and we'll um, be working on a communication plan that will probably include you know, social media and other um, uh, venues for getting, getting the word out about this. Great, thank yeah. you. Uh, Mayor, if, can I move the sure. ordinance? Ordinance, uh, I'd like to move ordinance 4870. Second. All right, it has been moved by Councilmember Pascal, second by Councilmember Black. I'm gonna let, do you wanna to speak to your motion? There's other questions first, okay. go ahead. I'll let Councilmember Tim Chisholm. Um, no, I just wanted to let the residents know that I do appreciate your emails and I did drive Goat Hill and I wasn't familiar with Goat Hill before I drove it. And um, so, thank you. Anyone else have, Councilmember Pascal? Yeah, I'll speak to my motion. So I think the city manager said it right earlier that moratoriums are not something that we take lightly, that we use sparingly. Um, and they're really only come up in very unique situations. And since I've been on council, I mean, I can count them on one hand um, or a few fingers uh, for that matter. Um, and, but this is, a, this is a situation like Adam has said has been ongoing for some time. We've tried to our planning uh, department and our public works department has tried hard to address the issues as they have arisen, but they continue to occur. Uh, we've heard from residents for a long time now about their concerns and those same activities continue to occur even through our best efforts. And this is not about one property or two properties. It's about the entire neighborhood. It's about the poor access. It's about the sensitive areas. And this really equates to a public safety issue in my mind. Um, you know, this was an area that we 
we took on from King County. They, th these conditions were there long before we annexed, uh, and we have tried to do our best, and now's a good time to really kind of sharpen our, the pencil and to study these issues in more detail, and so I look forward to working with the community on this. So I'll be voting in favor. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, yeah, I obviously I seconded this motion. I'm going to be supporting uh, this ordinance, and um, it is. I'll just make two remarks. One is just the incredibly unique nature of uh, Goat Hill uh, in our community. Uh, it's it's limited access. The limited investment in. Uh, in uh, infrastructure by the county before we annexed it. And um, and really for me, like uh, Councilmember Pascal, this is really a public safety issue. Uh, so I'll be supporting the ordinance, thanks. Anyone else? Question is on the motion to approve proposed ordinance zero, or I'm sorry, O4870, imposing a temporary moratorium on an emergency basis on the acceptance of applications for the review and or issuance of building permits within the Goat Hill area and providing for an immediate, immediate effective date. City Clerk, will you call the roll? Councilmember Tim Chisholm? Yes. Councilmember Black? Yes. Councilmember Sweet? Yes. Councilmember Falcone? Yes. Councilmember Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor, Mayor Curtis? <laughs> yes. We all do it. It's a habit hard to break. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Thanks. Here. So, Council, we are going into, don't get up yet, Hillary. We're going into a uh, discussion about uh, PFEC recommendations, the ballot measure uh, survey. It may take us a while, so we can take a break now or we can continue to move on. How are you feeling? All right, we're going to move forward. You can get up now, Hillary. <laughs> All right, so we are going to do a post-ballot measure parks funding exploratory community and park board feedback and community survey questions. City manager. Okay. So uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So I introduce you to Hillary De La Cruz, our management analyst who's been helping us throughout the process. Um, I want to note two things today that uh, we want to emphasize that there is no decision been made whether or not to pursue a ballot measure, that part of this is the direction of the council to get community information. So we did have conversation with the PFEC group um, and the park board. We'll be talking to other folks as well, but what we also really need from you beyond hearing their results is final decisions on this community survey. And if we're able to get that tonight, we'll be able to get the survey in the field. The goal of all this, as you'll hear at the end, is to have all this information brought to the council at the March 1st retreat. So at that point, we'll start asking for decisions. So with that, I will turn it over to Hillary. Thank you. Good evening, council members. As you know, my name is Hillary De La Cruz, and I am um, the management analyst of Parks and Community Services. Um, I am joined by Deputy Director John Lloyd, who is online in case you have any questions that he will be able to answer. Three clicks. Um, so tonight's presentation covers two separate topics, as City Manager Triple just mentioned. Um, first, I have eight slides for you with feedback from the Parks Funding Exploratory Committee, or PFEC for short, and from the Park Board. And then I have 13 slides with the updated post-ballot measure community survey questions, and we'll seek Council's feedback on the questions. Um, before I dive into the PFEC and Park Board feedback, I did want to mention that I was personally unable to attend both of those meetings. Um, however, I worked with staff to synthesize 
all the notes um, that they took, the very thorough notes into the council packet in this presentation tonight. And as you have questions about the feedback, I'll do my best to answer. But if, in case I can't, um, City Manager Triplett and John were both at the PFEC meeting and John was at the Park Board meeting, so they'll be available to answer questions as well. So um, as you read in your packets, 25 PFEC members attended the January 23rd PFEC meeting, which was kind of asked them to reconvene to give some feedback on Proposition 1 and what they thought happened. And three additional members <coughs> provided feedback via email. I mean, attendees included people that were working on both the yes and the no campaigns, as well as people that have broad perspectives. And staff facilitated a series of small group conversations at these meetings, followed by kind of larger group synthesis um, conversations. And the notes on the following slides are key takeaways that were shared at the meeting. And your council packet had a very detailed attachment that really shared kind of verbatim some of the things that were shared by PFEC members. We wanted to do our best to get all of that information to you so you could hear the diverse thoughts that PFEC members had. Um, so this slide shares reasons that PFEC members shared um, that people voted yes, that they'd heard in kind of a high level summaries. Um, so people voted yes because they, um, in, and the reasons included knowing the need for a pool in Kirkland, um, mentioned that families with children often were more likely to vote yes, um, people having a sense of community pride and thinking the measure would bring community benefit and support for the additional elements in the Prop 1 package beyond just the Aquatics and Recreation Center. Um, when considering reasons that people voted no, PFAC members shared reasons that included thinking Prop 1 was too big and too expensive, um, the dislike of the permanent tax structure, the impact that recent property value assessments and property tax increases have had on households. You might remember we talked a lot about assessed value last year and these big changes that were happening, so there's some um, thoughts that had an impact. And then not supporting an operating model of having taxpayers subsidize operations for the facility. Um, concern about having to pay a membership fee as well as a tax to use the facility. Um, it mentioned that seniors on fixed incomes felt proper one is unaffordable. Um, there was also some mention of the tech industry undergoing the contraction over the same time period and creating certain concern for economic stability for tech families. And then the location at Houghton Park and Ride was mentioned by some as being too far south for folks who live in the northern part of Kirkland. We also asked PFEC to share some of their um, things that they had heard that might have been confusions or misperceptions just for our education as staff and for you as council about what was out there in the community that might not have been shared exactly right or not might have been, might not have been fully understood that would be important to address um, moving, if there's movements forward in a different ballot measure. And so the kind of the biggest item that really seemed, you know, there was a complex and complicated ballot measure with the language, the funding mechanism, and the funding structure. They also shared that some people thought there was no demand for a pool and didn't know about the 10,000 plus swim waitlist entries um, and thought that the current pools at Peter Kirk Pool in the summer and Juanita High School were sufficient for the need in the community. There was also confusion about the operating model and different options for entrance fees. And I think there were some thoughts that somebody would have to pay a membership in order to go to the facility, whereas um, staff had intended for there to be an understanding that there would be some different levels of drop-in entrance fees and ways to attend without needing full membership. And then there's also, I guess that is the next item I went into. So those are some of the big misperceptions that were shared. And then PFEC members also shared some of their thoughts about looking forward. So the second kind of, after we looked back at Prop 1, we moved, or the group moved to a forward focus, and staff asked PFEC members if they thought council should pursue a ballot measure 
for a, the construction of a smaller community pool in 2024, and then reviewed two potential funding options, which we mentioned at the last council meeting, and I'll describe in a couple of slides, um, and ask for PFEC's feedback. And most PFEC members were supportive of another ballot measure in 2024, since there is still a strong need for a pool, um, though there were members that said that this was not the right time. And they also shared the importance of, um, that there be messages from council that demonstrate how council is listening to community input and any decisions that council makes regarding the next step are based on that community input. Um, well, while the proposals shared with PFAC were really focused on construction and what it costs to build the building and put everything inside the building, um, many PFAC members named the importance of communicating about the general structure of an operating plan moving forward. Um, even if that's not part of what's being funded right now, to talk about that and what impact that would have on people that would want to use the facility. And then PFAC members also talked about the timing of the ballot measure and the location of the facility, which I'll cover in a few slides. So um, the next day, on January 24th, there was a very similar conversation with the park board, and seven members were in attendance there. And so kind of going through a similar format of um, feedback from park board, the reasons that they shared for people voting yes included access to swimming lessons for children, uh, replacing aging infrastructure, an indoor pool being a critical need that has been missing from the community, the community benefit that would come with the investment of the pool. And reasons for voting no were, again, that it was too big and too expensive, the permanent tax structure, um, people feeling tax burden and just not wanting any more property taxes, some confusion over operational versus capital versus program costs, and location. So a lot of these reasons were similar to what PFAC had shared as well. And Park Board had also shared many of the similar hearings, more of the same misperceptions and confusion that PFAC heard out in the community. So looking forward, Park Board generally supported going forward with a smaller um, pool-only focused measure. They didn't have a consensus on which funding mechanism type. Um, like PFAC, they, they want um, some kind of discussion about the operating plan so people can understand what impacts that would have for them. Um, they talked about how the timing decision is a difficult one to make, and they shared that both the nine-year levy, the lift, and the 30-year bond scenarios could be good options and both at reasonable prices, especially compared to what the 2023 measure was. Um, so this slide has a lot of information on it that I'm going to kind of talk through. Um, both PFEC and Park Board were presented with two possible scenarios for funding a 40,000 square foot indoor community pool with both a family and a recreation pool and a lap pool. And that type, these types of pools could be used for swim lessons, swim and dive meets, and lap swimming, and just general recreation. And these are the same scenarios that were shared with council at the last meeting and have been in our draft survey um, questions. And we're kind of crafted based on all the previous information we had from OPSIS and looking at what might be a, a smaller facility that would um, be in some price ranges that people might be interested in. And so the first option here is using a nine-year levy lift property tax measure and to build the approximately 40,000 square foot community pool would cost about $50 million in either of these options. Um, and so building it in this option um, would be levied at approximately 15 cents per 1,000 of assessed value for nine years. And then after nine years, the tax would be done. Um, and that money from a levy lid lift, as long as it's nine years or less, can be used directly to pay debt service on council-issued bonds. Um, and the passage threshold for that is 50% plus, plus one of the vote. 
And the second option is using a 30-year bond property tax measure. Um, so to build that same facility, it would cost about 6.6 cents per thousand of assessed value um, for 30 years. And that would be 60% threshold to pass. And I should have mentioned the nine-year, if we're looking at kind of the million-dollar average valued home in Kirkland, um, the nine-year would be $150 a year, and the 30-year would be $66 a year. Um, so your council packet, kind of jumping to like some of the considerations about those two that PFEC and Park Board shared. Um, there's a table in your council packet that outlines some of those considerations. I'm just going to highlight a few. Um, so the nine-year levy lid lift, some comments shared in support of the that type of measure, um, talks about that it was almost half the cost of the original proposal, um, the 50% plus one threshold to pass is a lower threshold than a bond would need. Um, payments are shorter over time. There's only nine years of payments. And it could be kind of, kind of over the construction timeline of the project as opposed to burdening the next generation with construction costs. Um, the nine-year levy lid lift con comments were um, this a higher annual tax amount. Um, people that might not be sure if they're going to stay in Kirkland um, for long term would like would be more drawn to the lower amount if, um, and then also it could be because it's still a levy lid lift um, like prop one is a levy lid lift there could be some confusion with prop one and the permanent levy structure that was in that type of levy lid lift even though this would be a temporary levy lid lift um, and these comments I'm sharing you know lots of them overlap and some of them contradict each other and that just shows of course the complexity of all of this um, so related to the 30-year bond, the kind of the pro comments or rationale that was shared was that it, the cost was about one quarter of the cost of the original proposal. Um, that's a lower annual tax. Payments are spread over the lifetime of the facility for 30 years, um, which for many might seem more fair. Um, it pays directly for the debt service on voter-approved bonds. Um, and it gives the potential capacity to address other needs in other possible measures that council might want to do for um, other city priorities. And kind of sharing that anything under 10 cents allows people to think of public good instead of the cost um, when they're making their decisions about how to vote. And somebody shared that it's easier to understand a bond than it is a levy lid lift. Um, in the kind of con comments about a 30-year bond, somebody else shared that bonds are more complex to explain. So again, we have many thoughts about this. Um, the 60% threshold to pass is a higher threshold, and some people named that it might be harder to achieve that. Um, payments last longer, and then the city would have to pay more interest on a 30-year borrowing in that way. Um, and then some of the timing considerations that we move into. So there's two elections in 2024 that could be considered, um, August 6th primary election and the, the November 5th general election. And so considerations around the primary election um, are were shared that you know, it's the current demand for a pool and swim lessons um, would be really at top of mind for folks. Um, also top of mind is when the lake closes and there's not somewhere else to go, I want somewhere to go swimming. Um, there'd be less competition on the ballot, which I'll talk about in a minute regarding November. At this point, we haven't heard of anything else, any other ballot measures um, that would be on the August primary. Um, but August primaries also tend to have lower turnout. Um, and then regarding the November general election, you know, it's a presidential year, so we would expect much higher turnout, and especially higher turnout among families. Um, people shared that perhaps November would have more younger voters um, and renters who might be more fiscally liberal. And then the other consideration is that, like we talked about at a previous council meeting, 
Um, there are likely to be other property tax measures, including a Lake Washington School District measure on the November ballot. There's also likely to be a lot of statewide initiatives in the presidential election, so it's going to be a very full ballot. Um, so that is the end of the first part of my presentation about the feedback that we have. Next, we have the, question, um, the survey questions. But I did want to take a break here and see if council has any clarifying questions about the PFEC or park board feedback. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, well, Hillary, that was an excellent job. I just want to say um, thank you so much um, for a very clear uh, walkthrough. I mean, we read it in the packet, obviously, but uh, that was a uh, terrific job presenting the feedback we got. Um, I'M PROBABLY GOING TO HAVE MORE, uh, NOT A LOT OF REMARKS, BUT MORE REMARKS HERE THAN I DO ABOUT THE SURVEY. Um, JUST uh, WITH RESPECT TO THE SURVEY, I'M JUST REALLY EXCITED FOR US TO GET IT OUT THERE AND TO START SEEING uh, WHAT THOSE RESULTS ARE. Um, BECAUSE FOR ME, THIS HAS ALWAYS BEEN ABOUT um, LISTENING uh, TO THE COMMUNITY. Um, AND I SAID THIS at the, the, AT THE LAST MEETING WHERE WE DISCUSSED THIS, THAT REALLY um, THIS PUTTING, THIS DECISION TO uh, you know, to to invest in obtaining this feedback, uh, which we're doing with these conversations that you had just recently. Well, that your colleague, you, you, you said at the outset, your colleagues had these conversations, but you synthesized it so well for us. Um, and then the survey, uh, you know, it's hard in the face of a rejected ballot measure um, to put another ballot measure the very next year on the ballot, but doing it the way we're doing it, we're really seeking input. Uh, from those PFEC members who have dedicated so much of their time uh, in 2022 and 2023, uh, and now again uh, providing this feedback, um, our park board and, um, and, and ultimately our community. Um, you know, again, I'll just say that this, what we put in front of the uh, voters in 2024 is going to be very different than what we put in front of the voters in 2023, and it comes from uh, this process of listening uh, so I really appreciate that. Um, and um, the one question, oh, geez, that happens every single time. Um, I did have a question for you, Hillary, but now I can't remember what it is. Um, so I will, I'll, I'll yield my time and just uh, thank you for the hard, and all the staff for the hard work on all of this. And I'm really looking forward to March uh, when we can hear more um, of the results of the community outreach. And I'll just say again, uh, really particularly interested in that qualitative, those qualitative discussions that we might have as part of um, uh, uh, focus groups. Um, so uh, thank you so much. Councilmember Tim Chisholm. Thank you. Um, thank you everybody for sticking with this after it didn't work out the first time. Um, I appreciate all the hard work of staff and, and PFAC. It is my opinion that November presents the greatest, most obvious path forward. I would like to know, and it doesn't have to be at this meeting, more about the Lake Washington School District ballot measure and seeing if there's a way to partner with them rather than compete with them and how that would look. Uh, because I uh, was recently attending a Lake Washington School District event where several people mentioned this issue to me and wondering you know, if there's other going to be hospitals and um, other, other ballot measures and 
how that is going to impact the voter if they're faced with two, three, four potential tax increases on that November ballot. Thank you. And so I don't, I, I haven't seen if Lake Washington School District has an official position on our ballot, but I'd like just more information down the road. Thank you. Well, if you have it now, fine, but more down the road would be great. Um, I could just add, so Brian Buck from the school district was on PFEC, is on PFEC, and was also at the meeting, and we've had several conversations. The, the Lake Washington School District hasn't taken any official position. Um, we don't know everything they're going to put in their measure yet, but they do have money in the ballot measure that they're considering for the Juanita Aquatic Center. So we have talked about the fact that there's going to be two conversations about pools, their pool and this potential new pool. So I do... I do think the idea of talking with them more and seeing if we can deconflict, that's part of what we're trying to do in the conversations with Splash Forward and others is to see, like, where is there a real partnership here? But we can definitely bring more uh, information to the March 1st meeting. So, good. Yeah. Thank you. Deputy Mayor, I do see you, but Councilmember Sweet is next. Thank you, Hillary. Um, boy, we were working this, aren't we? <laughs> um, this is amazing feedback. Um, um, I just have to pile on with everybody else's gratitude to PFEC. I cannot believe the number of times you guys have come together and the number of times you've come back and encouraged us to stay on this path. Um, it, it's, it's really helpful to me uh, after what felt like a, practically a personal defeat last time um, to... Uh, to have the encouragement of the council to ask the question one more time. And I think that's what I'm ready to do. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I too also appreciate uh, the work of Hillary staff and, and PFAC on continuing to work this issue and see if we can uh, come together as a community on a solution and get some good Feedback clearly, given what we're hearing, we're seeing the um, some options and some big issues that we're going to have to talk about as a council. Uh, I hope that we will have a chance potentially at our retreat to talk about this informally. Uh, we're going to get some good information from the survey, but I also think there's going to be some challenging questions uh, on the uh, levy lid lift uh, bond versus the 30 year voted bond and. Um, the uh, potential conflicts, as Councilmember Tim Chisholm mentions, um, with the hospital district and the school district. So we're going to have some tough conversations. As we have that uh, those conversations, in addition to what we're going to get out of the survey, I'm hoping um, staff can provide some more information on um, some of the proposals that they are putting together in the survey. Uh, it's really interesting that we're finding some ways for some significant cost savings, but there's some trade-offs there. Um, a smaller facility isn't meeting the full needs and may have some that we identified with Prop 1 last year. So that may mean some trade-offs and conflicts between different user groups and, and how much open swim time there is for the public versus classes that we want to put on, uh, swim team and other events from the aquatics community that are really eager to uh, build and support and use this this pool. I'd like to understand those things. Um, also, given that 
would be looking at our smaller facility understanding as we're looking at our decision making opportunities for expansion and those costs at some point in the future. And then um, uh, finally, the um, differences in the facilities that we're talking about that get us to saying, you know, here's something that's potentially a quarter of the cost. Well, what did we lose um, from what we're talking about with the community pool versus the full aquatics and recreation center? So we understand that. So I'm hoping we can have those uh, conversations as well. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. And Councilmember Black, you thought of your question? I did, but I want to leave room for my other. I keep the, the penalty keep... for forgetting your other question is that you have to wait for the rest of the council to speak. I keep looking over there. They're okay. Go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so, Hillary, in one of your earlier slides, I don't think it's important that we go back to the earlier slide, um, but in one of the earlier slides, some of the feedback we got. Um, from these conversations we've had with PFAC members and the Park Board um, has to do with the complexity of the ballot measure language itself, um, which is not really, I mean, it's profound, but it's not news to us because we knew about the complexity of the ballot measure language and the, and the sort of really sort of the, the ways in which agencies like ours are uh, somewhat hamstrung by state rules regarding the language that has to appear in a ballot measure. Um, I would like, uh, you know, if we can, and obviously you don't have to answer this tonight, just as part of this process, I'd really like to understand a little bit more what those complexities were. I have my own assumptions as to what was confusing and complex, and I'd like to sort of put them in buckets if we can, um, the ones that we're sort of, we're stuck with because that's the way the state insists that we do ballot measure language. Um, and then, you know, what we can really learn, oh, the ones that where there is some flexibility for us and we can actually learn. So I just wanted to highlight that. Um, and I guess also it's a little bit of just making sure that we're uh, here for the dais tonight, you know, communicating with our community that there are, there are limitations on what we're able to do. And as much as we would love to craft something that was, you know, as clear as we would like it, we don't always have that flexibility. So it looks like maybe the city manager had a comment. I was for say, me. city manager. Oh, was to follow follow your comment, but if you're if you're finished, I am absolutely finished. Yeah. So the city attorney and I talked about your question. We're going to make sure that we provide that and talk to bond council too about what's required and then what might be flexibility and maybe someday we should change in the state law to make it simpler to put understandable ballot language on. Um, I just wanted to say two quick things. I think Deputy Mayor Arnold raised a really good point, and I want sure that anyone listening knows this, that um, the reason this is so much less expensive is because it's just one focused community pool. The Aquatic and Recreation Center on the ballot was really three great facilities in one. It was an Aquatic and Recreation Center. It was a really great indoor recreation center with two gymnasiums and worker rooms off, and it was also a really good community center. So. It isn't that we just magically made it cheaper. It's that we are talking about letting go of two other really needed facilities, which is indoor recreation and, and community space. So uh, we're still trying to keep that feature of a really good pool, and I think that's going to be something we'll make sure that we talk to the council about in March. So I just want to say that. The last thing I want to say about the PFEC process, because I had the um, privilege of being there. Also, uh, Mayor Curtis was there as well for the two hours. Is We did have a conversation at PFEC about location. And it was the one place where I think there was just really so much mixed input that the, they said, yeah, that really does need to be a survey question. So there are definitely folks who felt the location was a key issue. 
There was others who felt it wasn't really a, a relevant issue. There were some that talked about the cost of it, but they all concluded that, yes, you need to know the answer to that. <clears throat> and the reason I'm highlighting that is because when we get to the questions, we're actually um, proposing a couple supplemental questions you hadn't seen yet that like further elaborate on really getting to the issue of does location really matter when people make a decision about the pool. So um, just wanted to tee that up. Thank you. Any? All right, Hillary, part two. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Um, so this table here, um, we're shifting gears in the community survey. And this slide shows an updated timeline for the survey and for additional upcoming feedback efforts. Um, and so as you received a message from the city manager, um, we decided to extend the survey question writing time a couple of weeks to be able to review the questions again tonight and to use some of that feedback we've been getting in the meantime to incorporate them in. And so um, you're reviewing the draft questions tonight. Ideally, we will be able to turn those around and get them back to EMC tomorrow. Um, and if all things work well, we'd be able to go into the field later this week. Um, if not, next Monday, we have to avoid doing any surveying on the Super Bowl. Um, and, and so then we also, after that, um, some of the other additional feedback for the qualitative items are on this slide. So we are going to um, have feedback um, from Febu on February 12th from the Youth Council, on February 13th from Senior Council, and then um, we'll have the open link survey after the statistically valid survey closes. And then at the end of February, um, city staff are hosting three kind of feedback, like quasi-focus group conversations um, for folks to give additional qualitative data during. And then March 1st will be the day that you receive all of this additional feedback, the community survey questions, and some of the other questions that folks have brought up tonight, um, we are planning that into our March 1st um, meeting materials as well. So there will be lots for you to talk about. Did, are, do you have more? Not on this slide. Okay, no. I'm sorry. John, go ahead. Um, what is the hard date that we have to make a decision by for August? Yes, I will. I have a slide with that at the end. Um, May 3rd is the <clears throat> filing due date. Okay. And so um, the um, great, great question. And so April 30th is kind of when we would imagine planning a, um, a special meeting of the council for that May 3rd filing due date to make the decision by. All right. Anyone else? All right. Great. And for anyone, anyone listening or just to clarify as well, March 1st is kind of, and we'll talk about this later, is the kind of the decision point of this council want to move forward with some of the exploration based on all the feedback that's been gathered. And that's a, that's a pretty firm date, I would say, for being able to keep moving forward. Um, so the next 11 slides contain the draft survey questions that you've received in the council packet um, that were updated since the last council meeting. And I am just gonna go through each slide and again, kind of like last time, pause at the end to see what questions or comments you have on these questions. Um, and just wanted to mention a couple overall um, adjustments that were made. And then on some of the specific slides, I'll mention a few key specific adjustments. But overall, we were um, adding property tax um, with the, spe the specificity of property where applicable. Um, using the term entrance fees instead of membership fees to convey that there would be multiple payment type options, and adjusting the forward-looking um, questions to use the term indoor community pool with both a family and a recreation pool and a lap pool to be more clear about the purpose of that facility. Um, I think we talked about this before, but we were trying to convey that there's just pools in the facility, but it was also two pools and trying to help people understand what those pools could be used for. 
Um, so on this slide, we have the first four questions in the intro statement. Um, and the only little adjustment was made add to question four, adding the words couple of. Um, do you have any comments or questions about these questions? Councilmember Falco. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I shared some of my feedback already with staff, so I won't go into detail on all of my feedback, but one of my pieces of feedback was just on question four. I think this question is worded a little bit unclear. Were you able to vote? It's not clear if we're asking, did you vote or were you eligible to vote? And so I think we need to be really crystal clear based on the, the um, screening in question five or the instructions in question five, it seems like we're asking, did you vote? So I think we should just ask, did you vote? And then also um, relatedly in question five, we should um, change the language in there related to if voted. Great, yes, we definitely were intending for the did you vote version of the question so we can adjust that. All right, go ahead. Great, so now we have um, questions five, six, and seven. Um, and so again, question five, the paragraph of text explains what proposition was and asks the respondent how they voted or how they would have voted if they did not vote. Um, and we can make the adjustment to just make sure it's really clear about that um, question that Councilmember Falcone just ra raised. And then um, after Council's request for more details about what Proposition 1 was, we added a little more information about what some of those park enhancements were. And, um, and then we also added the note that the average homeowner is somebody that owns a million dollar home because we got some feedback that people might not know what that was. And then in questions 6 and 7, um, we changed those to be able to ask people what are the best reasons to support or the best reasons to oppose to try, um, allow for two responses instead of just one that was... Um, there before. I know last time we had some wondering if could we share this, could we make it even broader and EMC's feedback when considering the length of this whole survey was um, taking the two was going to be the best approach and most people would probably share, just have one or two to share. Um, but any questions or comments on these? Doesn't look like it. Great. Um, so now we have um, two, the next two slides have the 14 statements that respondents will be asked to respond to on a five-point agreement scale from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Um, and the introduction to the set of questions was expanded to explain the council's heard from community members about the topic and wants to seek um, more community feedback in figuring out how to move forward. Um, and so the statements, I just want to clear, I'm not going to read through them all, but I will welcome any questions or comments you have. But the statements on this slide and the next slide, all of them will be read to all participants. They'll just be in a randomized order um, so that they aren't in the same order for anyone, except on the next slide, question 20 will always be asked at the end. No questions. Okay. This is the next chunk of those questions, um, and a few edits were made to these ones to reflect Council's input. Councilmember Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, the wording on um, question 15, I think, is a little bit confusing, given that that is the location that was proposed. If I were taking the survey and I read that and I had been aware of the ballot measure, I would have been like, that doesn't make sense. That's where it was. So I think that needs to be reworded just to be a little bit less confusing. Um, and I just want to note that 18 and 19, I think, are, are really crucial in timing and in follow-up. And I'll have comments on that later. But, um, you know, that because they have to do with timing. My family can't afford this right now. And because of the uncertain economy, right now is not the right time. So just wanted to highlight that. Thank you. All right, go ahead, Hillary. 
So this slide has a lot of text on it. Um, hopefully you had a chance to review this one in your packet and it's in front of you and I've kind of bolded some of the key information. Um, but this version of the survey, one of the bigger changes was that in the previous version, you might remember we talked about a question that was asking three or four possible ways to move forward. Um, and then we were diving into these more specifics about two ways to move forward. And when reviewing all the feedback from the last council meeting and looking at the survey comprehensively, EMC recommended getting rid of that other question and just using this series here, um, which would really um, get at the kind of the two potential ways of moving forward, as you can see, um, and talking about the, the levy lid lift and the bond measure. Um, and we think this will answer this part, of, part of that question of like whether someone is more supportive of a levy lid lift or a bond measure. And it also, of course, has some of the, the, the different dollar amounts that are associated with that. Um, the way that this would be asked is that um, the respondents like would be randomly chosen whether they were going to hear 21 or 22 first. So some would hear about the levy lid lift first and some would hear about the bond measure first so that there's um, some better sampling that way. Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Hillary, is there a reason that we're specifically using the terms levity, lid lift, property tax measure, and bond property tax measure? These, this is different in the slides than what I remember reading in the packet, where we were just more general about these being property tax measures. Great question. Um, we noticed today that we had, in some of the various iterations of edits of this had dropped the term bond property tax measure, especially in the second one. And we were feeling that it's still important to name that it is a bond because that's one of the, th the pieces of feedback we've been hearing, you know, we it should have been a bond and we had lost the word bond. Um, Kurt, I don't know if you want to add anything to that at all. Well, and just the feedback from the pros plan, there was a question of would you support a bond, but it wasn't clear that a bond was a property tax, and people said yes, and then the next question is would you support a property tax, and they said no. And so we wanted to be clear that both of them are property tax measures, so we're trying to find a way to make that clear to both sides. Well, the other thing that I think is likely here is that there would be a nine-year bond issued with the levy lid lift, too. So... Um, uh, I do think that um, well, the, we have potential confusion both ways. That's true, but the lid, the way it's set on the ballot will be levy lid lift, and then the city council would issue bonds based on that nine-year levy lid lift. Um, but that's, that, yeah, that's an interesting thing to ponder. Um, so if there was a way to add exactly what you said, like a levy lid lift, in which the city would issue bonds against, um, I, I think that would be helpful but because of um, what I've been hearing in, in, in feedback of what people assume is a bond is um, something that pays for a facility and gets paid off. And even though the levy lid lift works in the same way and would be issuing a bond without that explanation, it might not come through that that's, how this operates. And I will, um, I, I, so it sounds like there's some trade-offs on saying, do you want to have the levy lid lift and bond specifically mentioned? And can you add the additional information in 21 that says the proceeds would be used to issue a bond? That'd be my recommendation. 
I certainly hear the interest there. I'm just curious what others think. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that would also be. Is your main issue that you want you don't want people to think the levy the lift is permanent like the previous one? Is that the big issue, or do you think it's the value of the word bond that helps? I think that there's value of the word bond that helps. Mm -hmm. Any other have thoughts on that? Councilmember Sweet. Uh, I think it makes it too confusing. For me. <laughs> um, I, I agree. I think if we need, in this survey, we need to keep a levy, levy lid lift and a bond as two separate things. And I think talking about bonds in the ballot measure is part of what added to the confusion. So I would keep them separate. Any other thoughts? And if I could just maybe add, I think um, I know that one of the confusions of the way we talked about the levy lid lift before, of course, was that we couldn't talk about it directly funding the construction because of how it was structured. And in this case, we will be able to talk about it directly funding the hmm. construction. And so I think in, you know, in the subsequent messaging, if, if it weren't to include the word bond up there, we would be able to very clearly say that. And it um, would be fine how we say that it's going to pay for the construction in that way. Um, so I think, there, I think that would be easier for someone to understand in the subsequent messages. So, Hillary, you're suggesting not doing it in the survey, but if we move forward, that it would be, then it would require a clear explanation. Yeah, I would, I would defer to Councilor Kurt's thoughts about kind of what, how to approach the survey itself, but I do think that um, we'll, be, we'll be very clearly able to talk about that, and it won't, it won't have to be the tiptoeing that was kind of felt before that did name some of the confusion that people shared. City Manager, any more thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that, that we could make that clear in a ballot measure language title if we get that far. But I'm, I think maybe for the question, it might be adding a little bit too much complexity to the question when we're really trying to get at bond versus levy. So, I mean, that would, I, my recommendation would be to leave them as they are. Deputy Mayor, any more thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we've hit on the, the issue, and certainly if we end up moving forward with a levy lid lift that we'd have to think about how to handle this, but it sounds like there's not a, um, a good way to work this into the survey that we want to release this week. So I understand. Thank you for that. Um, go ahead, Hillary. Oh, sorry, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I just have a brief comment on the question 21 introductory language where we say next there are two potential options. There are actually a lot more than two potential options, so I think that's a little bit miscommunication there. Also out to the public in case, you know, there are lots of different situations and we don't know what the future holds, so I don't want us to, again, this is a form of communication as well, as well as data gathering. Um, so I propose that we have language, something along the lines of next, I'm going to share with you two potential options rather than there are two potential, um, because I think it just narrows it too much for us and future possibilities and how we communicate that and also clarity for asking the question. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, we can do that. 
And I will add that, you know, in, in all the work that we've gone through with this, EMC has reminded us we are, we are bringing so many, we have brought lots of hypotheticals in different directions. We've tried to draw it in, but, you, you know, you're all feeling the kind of with us. The, <laughs> how do we ask the questions that we're really getting at? Um, so the next questions, um, as City Manager Triplett mentioned earlier, we really want to ask a little bit more about location. After hearing some of the PFAC feedback um, and after hearing some of the other feedback from council members and out in the community. And so there's two questions that were in your packet, which are these two on this page. And then we have two additional questions we just finished writing this morning, um, which are on the next page, uh, or on the next slide that I will share. And so these questions um, were added, again, to understand location preference. So the first question here is asking about possible locations for the community pool. Um, and mentioning the two that there are and asking if someone prefers one location over another. Um, this is a sim very similar or almost the same wording that we had in the question that was in the 2023 survey as well. And then if someone does prefer one location over another, um, they would be asked question 24 of which location they preferred. And then I'm gonna go to the next slide really fast to talk about the rest of the location series and then we can take any co questions or comments. Um, this slide has a lot of terminology about, a lot of survey terminology, so I'm gonna to try to kind of walk everyone through this. Um, but these were, like I mentioned, were drafted and finished this morning. And the first question is really asking, um, you know, based, someone had a preference before and how do they feel about that preference? And the next question is asking um, how, how someone feels about their preference and um, or kind of trying to measure what they would do if it was not their preference. And so for an example, um, if somebody answered question 24 on the previous slide, that their preferred location was the Houghton Park and Ride, they would be asked 25 about how important the Houghton Park and Ride location is to their support of a community pool. And they would be asked question 26 about how they would react if a community pool were built at NKCC instead of their preferred Houghton Park and Ride location. Um, hopefully I kind of explained the question logic well enough there, but I definitely, any questions or comments you have on these two, and I can jump back and forth, that's helpful. Councilmember Sweet. Yeah, I, it's not that it's confusing. I, I, what is confusing to me, though, is one of the reasons that we were so confident with the Houghton Park and Ride was how much less it was gonna cost to build on that. So I guess my question is, what is that difference, and will that be a direct decrease in the level of facility that we're able to put in because of the cost. Yeah, let me jump in on that, because we, we did go round and round about do you need to include the cost differential between the two as the reason, and um, I was the one who finally said, I think we need to take that out because the council can set the cost in either site, and we were basically saying, well, it's the cost differential at a theoretical $50 million project for a theoretical thing we haven't even designed yet. So we could tell you it might be $50 more, but we don't really know. We could just tell you it's more expensive. And in the end, the trying to synthesize all the feedback we got from PFEC and others was, I want it there, price be damned, or I don't want it there, right? And what we thought we would get out of the survey is if price matters, you're going to hear that through the survey. And so if price matters, you're not going to go to NKCC anyway. But if you got this clear, like, we really wanted NKCC, you're still going to have to decide how much you want to pay. So you may make a lesser facility NKCC, or you may risk a higher ballot measure. But we really were just trying to say, is that really a decider for people or not? Is location really a decider for people or not? But 
So it is a more expensive location, but it just got too much to, to try to try to sleuth that out, right? Um, and we didn't want to be vulnerable to, well, you could make it cheaper there by taking one of the pools out, right? So it's like, okay, well, let's let's just find out, does it really matter if it's at NKCC or if it's out? And that's what we're trying to get at with this. Councilmember Falco. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I appreciate this line of questioning and that this, what we're trying to get at, I think will be really valuable to us in our decision making. Um, this is adding four questions, which I think is a lot to get at this one concept. And given that we're concerned about the length of the survey, I think we can accomplish some fewer questions. I'm just kind of thinking on the fly here. So, um, but we could first just ask something like, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or whatever, what is your preference for each of the two sites? And then if there's a site that's a less preferred site, then we could ask like the follow-up question, like we realize, we, you know, we understand that this is not your preferred site or that you prefer the other site over this site, would you still support um, a ballot measure to build a pool here? I think that would really get at what we wanna get at and it would be much more simplified and help cut down on the number of questions. And I had some ideas about Penny's, uh, or sorry, Councilmember Sweet's uh, uh, idea with cost as well, but since it doesn't seem like we're going that direction, I'll hold that. Yeah, we actually talked about, do we just drop 25 altogether? Because 26 really kind of captures the same idea, right? Which is, if it's not built where you want it, does that, how, how much does that bug you? <laughs> right. so, yeah. so I think you're right. I think we can yeah. simplify this. I think we can this. combine it down to maybe two. From yeah. there. Okay, anyone else? Yeah, so that's an area for consolidation. We'll, we'll focus on that. Councilmember Tim Jason. I'm just gonna ask, uh, has there been any, any updated questions since the Lake Washington School District ballot measure issue arisen? Yep, that's another great question, and I will um, explain the, the thought process that went into that. So we were, like I mentioned earlier, um, with EMC research, we are already bringing a lot of hypotheticals in, and what they were, their feedback was really, we presented them with the idea of, can we ask a question about, you know, there also might be on the ballot something about a school district levy and something about um, public health, something about the climate, if the county does a climate measure. Um, how would that change your vote? And they they're, they were they worked through it a little bit in their minds and really were sharing with us that it's just so, there's so many hypotheticals that come with that. That's um, fine. That makes which, sense. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, and you know we really want that information. But I think there that's where some of the further conversations that the city manager is having will um, really hope hopefully lean into some more information there. Makes sense. Thanks, yeah. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I just wanted to clarify. For, I forgot to mention the other reason I think that I that I was proposing we consolidate in that way mm -hmm. is that these questions currently don't get at strength of preference, mm -hmm. um, and I, they we they, we do ask about you know likelihood of voting. But in my mind, this survey is not just about how are people likely to vote or what are they willing to support, but really trying to get at what the community wants. And so to me, it's not just what's passable, but really how can we best meet the needs and the wants of the community. So that's another reason why I was proposing um, the first question be a scale of strength of preference for each location. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Great. Okay, so then the next section here um, is a new set of questions that was added, and you saw this in your packets. And these were really adding um, statements in an agreement scale that was looking forward. Um, and so you can see the statements here on the slide. Are there any questions or comments about these ones? Councilmember Falcon. This is just a comment. I really appreciate these questions because I feel like this does get at like what I. I know I say a little bit of a squeaky wheel is that any survey is also a communication device. It's not just collecting data. And I think this does both. So thank you. Great. 
And then this is um, the, last the last question before demographics. Um, and this was added as an open-ended question um, to, again, kind of ask, you know, if there was a pool built in the future, what would the most important features or amenities be for it to include? And so to get um, folks' responses, and as you can see, EMCs noted that they would take up to three responses, but to really get some of that more open-ended discussion. And I'll just note, I know that in the previous council meeting, we um, asked about where where would we place this, and EMCs really recommended placing it at the end so that um, the kind of logic of the survey works to have have this, um, once everyone's thought about these other things, come at the end rather than kind of pre-priming them to put it, to then answer other questions based on this. Um, but that's how this question came to be. All right, no comments on that. Great. Um, so now we have the demographic Sorry, questions. Hillary, might jump in just real quick. So uh, one last thing before Hillary goes over these, because um, so we're going to do a final check-in with EMC on time tomorrow, and we may be long. And one of the things they suggested is that if we are long, um, they could cut some of these demographic questions. So we have them up here, but we want to just have that in your back of your mind. Is this, would you be willing to not have some of these, or would you like to have all of these? Because if we have to have a little bit of time, we might look elsewhere, but they are suggesting this could be a place you could save some time. Councilor Mayor Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Yeah, if, if that's the case, I think I mentioned this last time, my proposal would be to start with question 40. I don't think it gets us any information, and it actually is somewhat sensitive in nature and related to um, educational bias, so just wanted to mention that. Any other thoughts on that? All right. So why don't you go through those real quick, and then if... Um, Madam Mayor? Yes, sir. Oh, sorry, Jay. Deputy Mayor. <laughs> Um, on question 32, um, what's the purpose of asking for, uh, for whether someone's a registered voter? Um, if that wasn't, if that was a screening question, I'd get it. But as a demographic question, I'm not sure the purpose if we're looking for things to cut. Um, great question. That's um, really in there. So all, all of these, but kind of especially that one is in there so that we can run the cross tabs of the sample size of 600 people to see who says what. So. Um, EMC's estimate is that in a sample of 600, because we're just sampling adults in Kirkland that are over 18, and so in a sample of that, they're estimating we might have around 400 registered voters, um, and if we don't ask that, then we wouldn't know that piece of information to be able to run different analysis on that. Go ahead, Great. Um, so then this is... Our final set of questions was um, asking people if they're willing to participate in some follow-up. We edit edited this down a little bit since the city is going to be conducting the um, follow-up focus group discussions or follow-up conversations, as we're phrasing it here, um, and heard, you know, last time we were talking about what time constraints look like, so we um, are taking out mention of time constraints, and so that information is here. And then the bottom has the same outro that everybody would receive, whether they want to take part in that follow-up or not. Councilmember Falcon, getting a stink eye from the mayor. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, this is actually something I'm particularly interested in. I know I mentioned wanting to be interested. I really appreciate seeking input on the survey questions. I also think it's really um, I'm really interested in seeing the sampling plan. And then aside from that, the other piece I'm really interested in is um, more about this follow-up qualitative, how we're selecting people and what questions we're going to ask them. I think this is really key to some of the decisions that we're going to be making. For example, I can imagine you know. Some folks that say that they um, 
support the pool ballot measure, but as I mentioned earlier, those two timing questions that I mentioned I'd come back to, questions 18 and 19, if people really are supportive but they say, they answer that those things are an issue right now, the timing for their family or because of economic conditions, then I would wanna probe more about that. I'd wanna really understand when, what timing they think would be appropriate. Um, also, some of the folks who, um, you know, location support, uh, you know, or, or support or preference for certain locations, I'd wanna follow up potentially on some folks for that. Some folks who, voted yes for the ballot measure last year, but no longer support it. Why is that the case? And vice versa for folks who voted no, but do support a pool. Um, I'd want to, I want to follow up more with some folks. Uh, and the questions will likely vary between each of those subgroups. And I think we need to be really intentional and targeted as to who we reach out to, because we need to think about what information would we need more nuance about. Um, and who can we get that information from? And so that's going to be really crucial. And I think the, the, certainly the questions that we ask will differ from group, subgroup to subgroup. Um, I also think of, you know, are there some folks who potentially, you know, they might support some of the other things, but not the pool, right? Maybe they really wanted a community center or they really wanted more bathrooms. And we need to know that kind of information, I think, would be really helpful for this. Um, also, when I think about a comment earlier that I think Councilmember Black mentioned about um, the confusing language and really what parts were confusing. I think that would be also a really important thing to follow up on. And because of that, I actually would recommend some wording changes to question 42 and in the um, confirm here as well, just because we say that it's going to be in the next few weeks. I can envision a situation in which if we do decide to proceed with the ballot measure and we're working on the ballot measure language that we may want to reach out to some of these folks who mentioned that the ballot measure language was confusing last time and specifically target them to get some input like we did last time on um, reading the ballot measure language and helping us make it more understandable for the public. And so I would maybe not have the time constraints of, you know, in the next month or so or in the next few weeks, um, we can just say in the, you know, near future, something along those lines is a little bit more vague. That way, at least it opens us up to be allowed to use that contact information to contact them if we so choose um, in a few months. Thank you. Thanks. Can I just make sure I'm clarifying? So we're not gonna be able to do some of those things before March 1st, right? So that you're at March 1st, we'd be able to say, do you want that kind of, I mean, some of those we might be able to do, but each of the groups that you highlighted, we're probably not gonna be able to pull off by March 1st, so. I think I'm just curious what the like what the follow-up plan is with the qualitative. We haven't heard yet who we're going to be targeting for the focus groups and what we're going to be asking them. And to me, that's equally, perhaps even more so important than the survey questions. So I'm just interested in knowing about that because I'm personally really going to be paying attention to some of those comments from those. And so um, I don't know what that looks like, but I just, because we haven't seen that yet, I just raised that. And some of that uh, alone in that, because we've taken more time to do the survey to get it right with the PFEC and all that, we lost a few weeks and when you might have had the information. So now you're going to get the information. We'll be having it more like around February 20th. Yeah, and then you have the March 1st meeting. So Jim and I can talk through like what might be possible, um, but we just don't have as much time in order to have it for you as we thought we did when we were talking about this earlier. So. So I want to make sure I meet your expectations. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know the timeline as far as doing conducting the qualitative research. I don't want to speak to that necessarily, but just before it's conducted, um, I would like to see what the questions are and kind of how we're deciding who to speak with, because I think that's really key components of this research. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments, questions? Okay, Hillary. 
Great. Um, so that, that was all the questions that we had. Um, and so thank you very much for the feedback. And then I just wanted to um, share this timeline again, as we always like to end these ballot measure related presentations with um, in this timeline has on the left column, the timeline for an August measure on the right column, a timeline for a November measure and what we're what we be doing. And so you reviewed the question, the survey questions tonight and heard PFAC and Park Board feedback um, on March 1st. You have a lot of information you're going to hear at the council retreat. Um, so you'll have all the survey results, the information from the additional feedback results. Um, and I just want to mention that our deputy city manager, Jim, Jim Lopez, and then our communications program manager, David Wolbrecht, will be the ones kind of running those focus group feedback sessions. Um, and then we are also planning on bringing you some more information about um, from finance, about levies and bonds, and some more information about the operating um, facilities and the potential floor plans or kind of what it would take to get some more potential floor plans. So there will be a lot of the information I think answers many of the questions raised tonight. Um, and then from there, um, the kind of the August timeline is, of course, the more tight timeline um, with a few different important items happening with the May 3rd filing due date. And then the November timeline would have a little bit more time um, with an August 6th filing due date. And That's everything I have for you. Thank Let's you. Any more questions? Thank you. Hillary, I just want to personally thank you. You have been the center of everything around this, and you have really put your heart and soul in this, and so thank you for everything. And I also want to thank my council, fellow council members for expressing your appreciation to PFAC and the other stakeholders who also made a huge commitment on this process. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, I need a break. So we are going to come back. All right, we are back from our sh very short break, and we are now at item 9C, 100th Avenue Northeast Additional Pedestrian Crossing Update. City Manager, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, uh, before we go to the next topic, uh, Madam Mayor, I know that most of the council members actually need to get up early to go down to the Association of Washington City Legislative Days down in Olympia, and so I would suggest uh, maybe for the council uh, to potentially postpone a couple items on the agenda. So I'd like to suggest that we could um, defer the city debt uh, issuance. It's just a straight update of what's in your memo, so it's just straight information, no decision. Um, I'd also like to suggest that we defer the item 9G, which is automated uh, defibrillators in parks. That's something that is, there's no time limit on that. We can bring that back to a future council meeting. And then I'd also like to suggest that you could move the executive session for the performance of an employee uh, to a future council meeting as well. So if that would have no objection from the council, I would, I would suggest you take that up. The council is grateful. <laughs> Thank you, city manager. Does anyone object to uh, shortening our meeting up a little bit? All right, then we will take your recommendations. Thank you. Um, and now we will go to item okay. 9C. Oh, back to 9C. So uh, let me once again introduce our transportation manager, Doug McIntyre. Uh, we'll be talking about the 100th Avenue pedestrian crossing and be looking for some direction from the council. So welcome, Doug. 
you very much, Mr. City Manager. Good evening again, Madam Mayor, members of the Council. Doug McIntyre here, Transportation Manager, Public Works. Uh, we are returning tonight uh, with a presentation on the 100th Ave Additional Pedestrian Crossing. Uh, this is a follow-up to the Council presentation we gave in December, December 12th, uh, seeking Council feedback and uh, an overview of the work that we we're pursuing. Uh, with us tonight is uh, Laura Drake, the PM of the project online, as well as Jennifer Palmer, our uh, traffic engineering supervisor. And with that, I will turn it over to Jennifer. <laughs> Sorry, I did that in the break. <laughs> okay. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. I need to. Doug needs to start lowering the podium for. <laughs> <laughs> Build that into his. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Doug. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, Council Members. Um, as Doug mentioned, oh, I'm Jennifer Palmer, I'm the Transportation Engineering Supervisor here in Public Works. Uh, tonight's presentation, as Doug mentioned, is following up from a previous study session item on December 12th. I will mention that all of the. Um, items presented tonight are in your packet in full, um, including a history of past council meetings about this project. Um, tonight, you'll receive the results of our evaluation and our staff recommendation. And then we'll ask you to provide direction on our staff recommendation to install a pedestrian crossing uh, for the 100th Avenue project currently under construction. And at the end, I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. Um, our safety evaluation was based on these four key criteria. So reducing pedestrian, uh, potential vehicle pedestrian conflicts, proximity to bus stops and other pedestrian generators, turning vehicle access and consistency in driver expectations. The results ranked the northern bin block location between Northeast 140th Street and Northeast 140th Place as the preferred alternative. Furthermore, when comparing Hawk signals and RFBs as potential crossing enhancement options, the Hawk achieves a higher average driver yield rate, according to studies from the FHWA, and is regulatory in nature as a, compared to the RFB, which is a warning device. Either treatment option would be a safe crossing enhancement, but the Hawk appears to be the safer of the two. With the help of our design consultant, we've taken a look at the different factors that make the crossing either easier or more difficult to implement at each location. All of our proposed improvements include items that support a safer crossing environment, such as street lighting, a pedestrian median refuge island, ADA compliant curb ramps, and more. Some of the design revisions that we're anticipating include, but are not limited to, stormwater management and bioretention areas, changes to the wall and grading design, uh, and revisions to curb ramps, sidewalks, and the bi raised bicycle path. Each of these items will have elements that will affect the cost to implement, which have been incorporated into the table on the right. And I will also mention that this represents an, engineering, uh, an engineer's opinion of probable construction costs, and it's still preliminary in nature. Overall, we believe that the Hawk Signal will be the safer of the two crossing enhancement options. They, but they cost about twice as much to implement at each location due to varying infrastructure needs. Um, I will also note that while the improvements will be costly to implement, 
If we're going to do them now or in the future, they're never going to get less expensive to do, to implement than in this project uh, that's currently under construction. Um, we continued our public outreach uh, efforts. Uh, to summarize, in mid-January, we sent out a project mailer to approximately 400 households in the immediate project area. Our website was also updated with our uh, recommendation and other information. Um, we did some social media engagement on this topic. And then I also emailed uh, a number of residents who had previously contacted city staff directly uh, with questions um, or feedback about this project to give them an update. Um, on what was happening on the project and our current recommendation for the location of the crossing. Um, to date, uh, we've received approximately 15 responses. Um, this is just what I have access to, what people have emailed to me or what I can see on the Our Kirkland platform. Generally, people are very supportive of a new mid-block location or a new mid-block crossing um, at our recommendation, recommended location. Um, three residents did express support for the southern mid-block location uh, between 139th and 140th, uh, but I will note that their feedback appeared to be based on the assumption that the bus stops would stay there when, in fact, in the final configuration, the bus stops will move to the south leg of 140th Street. Um, so the, uh, the other couple of messages that we got were two residents expressed support um, for the crossing at the south leg um, of northeast 140th Street. Uh, which we heard from tonight, one of them, in public comment. Uh, so in conclusion, staff recommends a hawk signal uh, at the northern mid-block location between Northeast 140th Street and Northeast 140th Place. For next steps, and with direction from council, uh, staff will complete the revisions to the design um, of the 100th Avenue Northeast project currently under construction. We'll return to council for fiscal note approval execute the change order, and construct the improvements uh, in the project that's currently underway. And with that, I'd like to open it up for questions and discussions. Thank Any you. very brief tonight. I know. That was amazing. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, any comments, questions? I'll entertain a motion. Uh, well, oh, I, do have, sweet. I do have a comment. Um, I, I just, I'm more convinced than ever that it is the safety issue, and I think given that, it's really hard to make an argument not to support the staff recommendation. Oh, Council Member Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate all of the outreach that staff has done. I appreciate all of the input from community members. We've heard from a lot of residents who live close by. Um, and from the input that I've read and that I've heard, um, I feel like there's kind of two buckets. There's those that want the mid-block, and there's those that want it at 140th. And the theme that I'm hearing is those who want it at 140th are pedestrians and transit riders. Given that this is a safety improvement for pedestrians and bicyclists um, and folks who roll, um, to me, that lens is more important. I want to make sure that those who this is intended for their use, that it's built in a way that they will use it and that will keep them safe. Um, so that said, I support having the crossing at 140th Street. 
and and do support the um, recommendation of a hawk crossing, given that it's such a wide road. I also would like to have a conversation at some point about how we pick um, RFBs and hawks. Uh, as we know, RFBs are really expensive and hawks are even more expensive. And we wanna be able to provide the safest infrastructure that we can everywhere. But I don't know that I'm convinced that two RFBs are less safe than one hawk. Like in this situation, maybe it's better to have two, two RFBs along this stretch than to have just one hawk so that more folks would actually use it. There's one in closer proximity. I don't know that. Um, and I, so I would like to better understand that. I know that, you know, it was kind of alluded to that, you know, drivers stop more quickly for hawks than for RFBs. Does that actually translate into fewer crashes? Does that actually translate into increased pedestrian bicyclic safety? I don't know. We haven't seen that data. Um, and it's a pretty big investment. So I'm kind of trusting staff on this one because we have a short timeline. If we have time, I'd prefer to actually pause and understand that better before um, making a decision on Hawk versus RFB. I think we're right now with the information we have basing it on what feels safer rather than on really knowing that it's safer and provides additional safety for that additional cost. Um, so again, with the lens of keeping our most vulnerable safe, um, I support a different location than the staff, staff recommendation, but I'm trusting staff on the Hawk um, being the safer route to go. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I'll start off by saying that I support the staff recommendation, uh, both at location and the uh, design and equipment of the, with the Hawk. And you know, I know that I I raised the safety concerns uh, earlier when this last came before us in December, and really looking with a safety lens perspective, and. I, I just want I want folks to understand that the decision is not about for me it's not about whether or not to maintain access into an out of the neighborhood at that location. To me, it's <clears throat> that locating a crosswalk where there aren't vehicles turning, making left turns, is proven to be safer. Uh, that is where the most deadly collisions happen between a vehicle and a pedestrian. Uh, because left-turning vehicles aren't looking um, always where the pedestrian is when the pedestrian's in the crosswalk. And there's many instances of that um, that we see in Kirkland that we see all over. Um, <clears throat> and even if a turn isn't allowed because of signage, people still make that turn, and that's when it even makes it even more dangerous. And so that's why I raise concerns about the crosswalk at 140th um, and encourage us to look at a mid-block location. So I strongly feel that mid-block location is the right location. I think it would be, I would like to understand why the bus stop can't be next to it. Um, to me, that's a question mark. Um, you, we want the, the bus stop near the crosswalk. We don't want transit riders walking out of way. So that seems like that would be something that, that could be addressed. Um, Maybe you can answer that, actually. That's a question. Why, why, if it's located at the mid-block between 140th and 140th place, what's the, what's the issue with the bus stop being moved? 
Yeah, so um, <clears throat> after the last council meeting on December 12th, I know that Doug um, did correspond with KC Metro and ask questions regarding moving a bus stop and how we sort of arrived at that decision and what it would take to move it. I don't know, Doug, if you wanted to comment on what you heard from them. Yeah, um, this was right after the meeting in December. We had reached out to Metro, and uh, they did, as you can imagine, uh, indicate that there's a lot of factors that go into moving bus stops, and there are criteria that they have to review on uh, setting a location of a bus stop. Um, I have to uh, go back to my emails and kind of dig up some of that uh, detail, but um, it has to do with a, a variety of things, including um, uh, the pedestrian desire line that, that was talked about earlier in the December meeting. Um, uh, service and reliability, and um, but I I will need to go back and look in more detail on some of those specifics. Yeah, I, um, for us, I think that's definitely a question too. Um, I um, just to echo some of your sentiments, right? Like I want this to be a safe crossing in a safe location, and um, you know. The pedestrian desire line is very important to consider, right? Putting in a location that people will use it. But um, just to sort of echo uh, Councilmember Pascal's comments, um, looking to reduce those potential conflicts with turning vehicles is very important. Um, and the northern mid-block location does represent the fewest of those conflicts. And then on the, the Hawk versus RFB, um, I mean, I understand the dilemma there uh, due to cost. It's like, yeah, you could do t two of these, like Councilmember Falcone said, and, and, and do more. And that's, I think that is something that we need to be thinking about and considering. My understanding is that we are in the process of, of, of um, installing Hawks in, in all of the, our five-lane kind of mid-block locations. And it's to our, um, and that's something that we're working towards. And so the five-lane uh, crossings along Northeast 124th Street, for example, near the the community center, those are, that's going to be changed out with um, a hawk, and and same with some other crosswalks. So I see this as eventually we're we're changing these out because it's they're proven to to be safer. Is that that's yes? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I that that is my understanding um, as well. Um, yeah, they do they do have different costs to implement, but they also have different safety features, right? Um, and I will mention here that staff is working on a crosswalk policy. We currently have a published crosswalk policy that uh, hasn't been updated in a little while. So um, it's under review by our group right now. There's a draft made um, that gives uh, more guidance on when you would do a hawk versus an RFB, because it is an important question. It's a big investment. Um, and we want to be judicious um, with the funds that we have. Um, so that is something that we are currently working on. Any other questions? Um, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I would just add to my comment earlier about looking at you know where we're recommending um, Hawks versus RFBs. That I would really like part of that conversation to be. My understanding is the same as Councilmember Pascal's that wherever we have five lane roads is where we're looking at Hawk signals. Um, <clears throat> it's really important that part of that conversation is why do we have five, five lane roads? And can we change that so we no longer have five lane roads and not a need for a hot crossing? Um, so I just want that to be part of the conversation moving forward and not just default to a conversation of should we have hawk or RFBs, but really why do we need a million dollar investment in a crosswalk? Are there other improvements that we could do 
to make um, that space safer for active transportation. Thank you. Councilman Pascal. I'd like to go ahead and make a motion to uh, accept a staff's recommendation crosswalk at between Northeast 140th and Northeast 140th place with a hawk. Second. Second. I got you. Bless you. <laughs> uh, thank you. The question is on the motion. Uh, motion made by Councilmember Pascal, second by Councilmember Tim Chisholm, um, to approve the staff recommendation to implement an additional Hawk Crosswalk signalized mid block pedestrian crossing at Northeast 140th Street and Northeast Place as a safety improvement on 100th Avenue. Um, and further direct staff to return to council to further meeting for funding options and proposed fiscal note. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Those opposed? Uh, the motion carries. And Jennifer, before you go, um, great job on the community communication. Thank you. Um, the R Kirklands are popping up in our mailboxes, and we all are like, Jennifer has it. She's proactive and she's quick and it's very impressive, so thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. All right, we are moving on to 2024 legislative session update. <clears throat> okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So here to give us that update is Diana Hart, our government relations manager. Welcome, Diana. Good evening, Council. Try and keep things uh, short tonight so we can get down to Olympia uh, not too much later from now. Uh, starting uh, today is day 30 of the 60-day short session, which means we've passed both committee and policy cutoff um, deadlines, and both chambers had nearly full time to the floor. Um, with those cutoffs, uh, 1,259 bills survived policy cutoff, and 746 of that 1,259 survived fiscal committee cutoff, um, which takes Kirkland's tracking list down to 138 bills. Obviously, with all the usual caveats of um, bills can come back at any time when they're determined necessary to implement the budget or NTIB, um, and that can either mean because they have actual fiscal components to make them necessary to implement the budget or sometimes some uh, political components that make them necessary. So with that, we'll dive into an update on what we've done since our last meeting. Um, our first item is transit-oriented develop. Uh, Kirkland's amendments to preserve incentive zoning were taken in committee, and Councilmember Sweet testified in support at the February 2nd hearing. While the House bill did make it out of fiscal committee, the legislation is anticipated to have an uphill battle the rest of the session, um, so we'll continue to monitor and uh, support this legislation as it travels through the process. The next one is real estate excise tax. Um, for the REIT 3, both components have now had a public hearing um, and await further action. As these proposals would raise revenue, they could be determined necessary to implement the budget and be brought forward for consideration at any time. Next, we'll dive into uh, behavioral health. All of the behavioral health bills we're tracking have advanced through cutoff with um, House Bill 1939 already making it out of the House. And then jumping in to property tax cap, 5770 um, 
another piece of legislation likely determined NTIB, but is also moving, which is a great sign for optimism uh, for this legislation because it's Diana, faced a lot of challenges in the past. Diana, hang on. Oh, are you not? We lost your presentation. Your slide did not advance. Oh, there it is. There we go. That one work? Thank you. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, which then takes us to things that all the actions that we've taken since our last meeting. We signed in support for numerous bills that supported the city's general principles due to their alignment with our plans and policies. Uh, one bill staff spoke in opposition to due to the significant potential impacts um, it would have on our recently adopted tax increment area was House Bill 2354 and its companion Senate Bill 6230. These proposals would have granted junior taxing districts the option to opt in instead of being automatically included in tax increment financing, drastically reducing the amount of potential revenue that TIFs could generate and prevent the type of economic development activities that local governments have been advocating for through the allowance of TIFs for many decades. This bill has since been thoroughly amended and is advancing through the process in a form that is much more limited in its impacts to the city. We also signed in support for our behavioral health bills I mentioned during our priority section of the presentation. And there continue to be numerous housing bills attempting to target different impacts and processes to reduce barriers to housing developments. We signed in opposition to 6285, one of a handful of impact fee bills that would have reduced our ability to use or uh, generate impact fees. This and other similar legislation did not survive cutoff. And that takes us to heading down to Olympia tomorrow for City Action Days. Um, and that's the big upcoming news that we have. Um, we do have one item for discussion, um, and that is the Traffic Safety Camera Bill, um, which is House Bill 2384 and its companion 5959. Um, only the House version survived the policy and fiscal cutoffs um, the Senate bill did not make it out of the fiscal committee. Um, it was scheduled for an executive session, but at the last minute was not taken up for consideration. These bills concern um, automating traffic safety cameras, which Kirkland recently authorized in some of our school zones. The bill was recommended by the Traffic Safety Commission, of which uh, Councilmember Pascal is a member. This legislation does numerous things, include, including allowing for traffic safety camera footage to be reviewed by non-commissioned officers and allows local governments to keep more of the revenue generated by traffic cameras. Instead of sending a good chunk of the revenue back to the state, this bill allows local governments to keep the funds for local traffic safety purposes. While these are all great items, one concern is that Kirkland currently uses some of the revenues to fund the city's traffic-related law enforcement officers, and that isn't explicitly listed as one of the allowed traffic safety purposes in the, in the legislation. We flag this as a potential item to raise with our delegation when we're down in Olympia, as this bill is facing some challenges and the sponsors of the bills haven't been eager to make this correction that we're requesting. Um, so wanted to flag that for a discussion, but otherwise turn things back to you for any questions and comments. Anybody have any questions or comments on the traffic safety camera bill? Okay. Seems like a great bill that we should be all in on. So, so. okay. Um, anything else, Diana? That's all for me. Go ahead, Councilmember Felix. I just want to clarify the silence of council. Does that is that being interpreted that we continue to support the traffic safety camera bill? 
because that was what mine meant. But I just want to make sure that that was clear. Thank you for that clarification. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. I'm getting tired. Sorry. Um, okay. Before you go, because I like to shout out, and um, I just want uh, everyone to appreciate how hard our legislative staff works. Um, it's clear when we're heading down to Olympia how much prep time has gone into that. And um, you guys have no idea how awesome Diana is. Mm -hmm. Like, this woman knows her legislative stuff. And I promise you, if you throw a bill number at you, at her, she will tell you where it is, what the bill is, and what's happening next. So um, really, really proud of our staff, and I'm really looking forward to spend time with everybody in Olympia. So thank you. All right. We are done with our business. And uh, nope, we've got to pick the uh, lottery. Oh, we do. Thank you. Just about to say the same thing. Thank you. All so right. We have our We're going to go to City Council Board and Commission Interview Selection City Manager. This will be quick. Yes. Uh, thank you, Mayor. So as you know, your policies uh, set up a interview panel that does a screening um, for full interviews by the council, and we draw that name by lots. So the city clerk will be selecting three folks to do that original screening. And the winners are. <laughs> <clears throat> Councilmember Falcone. <laughs> it isn't. It's Councilmember Black. It is an honor. Get a hold of one. Council member Tim Chisholm. Oh, wow. There you go. All right. It wasn't rigged. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the interview selection process. Well, thank you. All right. Now we're done with our business agenda. Oh. Whoops. So, Madam Mayor. I... Oh, do we have to make a motion? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. But can, uh, can I ask the clerk what the process is then going to be? What's the next step? for you and our committee? The applications are being listed in CouncilNet as they're received, and the deadline is February 14th at 4 p.m. So we will schedule a meeting now that the ISC has been established for you to meet and consider the applications that have been submitted. Oh, okay, wow. Any other questions? Looking forward to it. Thank you. Okay, for the third time, I'm trying to go to <laughs> to reports. And uh, Deputy Mayor, if you don't mind, I will start with you. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I'm going to defer my report, but I do have an an ask based on what happened at the East Trail Regional Advisory Council meeting on January 25th. Um, I sent mail to you, you all about this, but the uh, RAC is organizing a leadership summit to put together the high-level strategy and vision of how we complete and construct, construct and complete the full East Trail. We did a similar summit about eight years ago, and there is an additional cost share ask. Kirkland's share of this would be uh, approximately $7,000. So I'd like to move that we direct staff to prepare a physical note for uh to cover the cost share for the east trail leadership summit uh, paid from council uh, council special projects fund or uh, other sources as recommended 
by staff. That was a motion from Deputy Mayor Arnold. Do I second. have a second from Councilmember Sweet? It's been moved by Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Councilmember Sweet to approve $7,000 to the East Rail. Um, and a fiscal note will come back to us from our for our council special projects reserve. All those in favor, play, say aye. 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 Any opposed? Motion passes. Um, I will go to Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. The only uh, item that I'd want to update the rest of the council on is we had the meeting of the Lake Washington School District uh, coordination meeting with uh, us and uh, the district. And Councilmember Falcone joined me, um, and the city manager did too. Had a good discussion as always. Uh, lots of topics on both sides, but you'll get uh, Andriana <coughs> takes great notes, and so we'll send those out. The one thing that uh, I'd mention is that we did have discussion on the school impact fee resolution that we passed in December, and. Um, uh, just kind of talk through that a little bit about you know, potential next steps there. And we also, one of the things that will be upcoming is uh, a name, street name dedication for Raven's Way um, for Juanita High School. And so I know staff and the district are currently kind of working on the date for that, both the resolution that will come to us uh, for adoption, but then the, the celebration that, that we're hoping the students can and help lead so and then uh, maybe you have other things you want to share but that's it for me thank you councilmember Falcon. thank you madam mayor well thank you for that transition there <clears throat> pascal because i was gonna um mention uh we did have a great coordinating uh committee meeting with lake washington school district and it was raised earlier tonight that uh the discussion around the juanita pool and the ballot measure this fall um, just wanted to mention, I don't want to speak on behalf of the school district, but just wanted to share what they shared with us generally, um, just really high level, is that uh, the current plan is that they, um, are they want to include in the ballot measure funding to uh, renovate the existing pool with the existing footprint. So it's not to increase capacity, it's not to change, really change much of anything, but just to update because it's it needs repair and needs to be modernized. So just wanted to clarify that also for folks who were watching that discussion earlier, that it's not you know, two ballot measures potentially of increasing pool capacity. Theirs would not, and obviously ours would. So anyway, wanted to clarify that. Also had a, um, oh, time goes by sometimes so quickly, sometimes so slowly. I don't remember what week, I didn't write the date down, but a fantastic breakfast, I think it was last week, um, the superintendent um, held a leadership, the annual leadership breakfast. Uh, was uh, joined by Councilmember Chisholm as well um, and had a, a great breakfast there, heard some of the fantastic work that the district is doing around equity, um, got to, to meet with some great folks, so really enjoyed that time. Um, Mayor Sweet and I, or Mayor Sweet, so sorry, Mayor Curtis, see, I miss it up too. I was looking at you, but said Mayor Sweet. <laughs> Mayor Curtis and I uh, volunteered for the point in time count where we interviewed um, folks who are currently um, unhoused in our community. Um, and that was a very worthwhile use of our time. And I'm really appreciative to have been able to be a part of that and to participate in that. Uh, met some really great folks in our community and some of our unhoused neighbors. Um, same day as the uh, superintendent leadership breakfast, had a, um, 
attended the second annual King County Affordable Housing Symposium, um, was a fantastic event again, um, a slightly different uh, focus this year. You may remember last year was um, the author of the, uh, the homelessness is a housing issue, housing problem. I always forget whether it's an issue or problem. Anyway, uh, the local uh, UW professor who authored that book presented last year, and this year it was kind of a mix of different panels and really great um, background on affordable um, housing issue and equity issues related to that, and there was a great mix of folks there, a great networking opportunity as well. Um, appreciated um, being able to attend the CAN meeting last week and hearing from some folks there. Also, um, last week attended a really fun award ceremony with Mayor Curtis, my brain still wants to say, Mayor Curtis and Councilmember Black um, uh, with some of our amazing staff and um, engineers for the American Council of Engineering Companies Engineering Excellence, we won a gold award for the Totem Lake Connector Bridge. It was a proud night for the city of Kirkland. It was really special to get to be there because of the hard work of others, <laughs> such as um, Julie and some other uh, folks who were there that really, really, really earned this award. It was really fantastic to get to witness that and to, to witness their hard work be recognized and honored. So really well done to the entire team there. Um, it was a good night for us. As um, Mayor Curtis mentioned earlier, I attended the Lunar New Year celebration this past weekend. It was fantastic. At, when I got, I got there right as it was beginning, I um, brought my daughter with, um, I came straight from another Kirkland event. Uh, um, my son plays basketball through the city, so we came straight from basketball uh, games straight to that event. And we got there right as it started, and it was packed. I mean, it was a packed house. And there was amazing, there was refreshments, there were activities, there, were, there was entertainment, there were crafts, it was that beautiful community art project. I mean, it was fantastic, amazing staff were there as well. I mean, it was just, it was a wonderful community building event. It was a lot of fun. When I was leaving, um, they were holding people and counting people as they left to let more people in because we were at capacity. That's how popular it was. So really, really, really well done to our staff who put that on. I mean, just again, another really, really proud Kirkland moment and really proud of our community. So that was really awesome. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to City Action Days. I'll leave it at that. There's a lot more coming up, but those are some of the highlights of what um, I've been doing. Thank you. Councilmember Sweet. Just a couple things to report. I have been going through orientations to my new committees mm. So healthy, healthier here. I am an alternate on fascinating work, uh, and and it work. It's work that uh, Hope Link is involved in as well. So that's a really nice fit for me. And then the Board of Health. I've had my orientation to that. I'm going to miss the first meeting because it is in conflict with the kickoff of the EMS meetings this year. But uh, I think it's going to be a very full year. Um, the other thing I had to report is I did have a meeting with Ray Hoffman this morning. Cascade Water Alliance. They are getting the projections now of the bad news that we are looking at in terms of weather for uh, water, I mean, for um, 2024. Uh, they are predicting that we will have another year like 2015 where the spikes were way down in terms of water availability and our ability to, to meet 
peak flow. We may go into drought conditions again this year if something doesn't change with regard to snowpack. Snowpack is at 60% reduced from a normal year. Yeah. Thank you. Did you have an LRN? I'm, that's calendar. Calendar. Thank you. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, yeah, I'm going to defer most of my report except to highlight one item that might have uh, should probably be in your inbox, but it might get overlooked. We talked in the um, SMRI uh, raised at some of our earlier meetings um, discussion of King County's uh, care and closure uh, plan um, and the fact that um, the SEA caucus to the Regional Law Safety and Justice Committee, which I chair, the members of that caucus had recommended that the uh, care and closure plan be elevated uh, and discussed among SEA members more broadly. Uh, I've been working with um, SEA staff to try to schedule that along with uh, the King County um, staff who are preparing that care and closure initiative. And that is happening. Um, there's a lunch and learn that's probably in your inbox uh, on February 29th from noon to one um, that you have to register for, but it's virtual. And I just highlight that if you're interested in that care and closure plan, um, that would be a good place for you to learn more about it. Uh, again, King County staff uh, is going to be presenting. Uh, my understanding is that uh, proposal has been now officially forwarded to the council, King County Council, uh, by the executive, um, and that the original plan when it was initially um, initiated <laughs> in 2020 was closure of the juvenile justice um, center by 2025 and that's now been postponed to 2028. So that's, that's a, that, that move from 2025 to 2028 is a very recent development. But um, plan's still being worked on and that's an opportunity for you to hear more about it. Um, and with that, I will hand it off to my neighbor to my right. Nothing to report, thank you. Uh, thank you. I have nothing to report either. So we will go to city manager's report. I have uh, two quick items, both of which will be ably assisted by Diana Hart, the government relations manager, is going to help me out. So the first is a check-in on council retreat agenda. I just have one slide. Um, these are the uh, potential council retreat topics. Uh, I want to get council feedback on these tonight, and then we'll actually have a formal draft agenda for council review on the 20th. Also for edit and adoption. So this has come out of conversations um, somewhat informal with, with all of you and also trying to get a sense of what has to be talked about. So um, what I have as a draft is a community pool. Um, the survey results will probably be the bulk of it. That'll probably take um, quite a bit of time. Uh, we're recommending a short conversation about the regional fire authorities. Uh, this is something I've had a chance to talk to some of you about, but not all of you yet, which is there's quite a bit of conversation swirling among the fire community about uh, regional fire authority for Bellevue, Kirkland, and Redmond. Uh, just something Redmond is interested, but Bellevue and Kirkland do not have it front and center. We just thought to just give everyone a little background on it. Um, that could also be done in a different way. It doesn't have to be at the retreat, but we just want to make sure everyone knows what's, what's out there. Um, we have, I've heard from uh, several of you about city communications and community engagement continuing to be something you'd like to see improved. Uh, recognizing that a lot has been done, which I thank you for, but also that there's also more that can be done in this area. Um, connecting the council and the community. Uh, there's been some uh, possibilities about discussing economic development and particularly maybe looking at the station area and what could be done in the station area over time. 
Um, and then council procedures is a bit of a catch-all phrase for how you all conduct business. Uh, so as an example, I heard from Councilmember Tim Chisholm, um, and I know others have talked about this as well, about maybe return to like study sessions being at the table versus being at the podium. Uh, there may be other things you want to talk about, about how you organize yourself or operate. Um, and then finally, we always have the council potpourri where any ideas can be um, talked about and generated. Um, so. Um, so that's my initial list, but I want to see if uh, council, there's anything on there that you wouldn't want to talk about or if there's things that you think need to be added as we construct the agenda for the 20th. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, before the retreat, could we just clarify what we're really looking for with council potpourri? I have seen this. This was never defined for me as a new council member, and so I've just been watching what happens, and it is drastically different, I find, from retreat to retreat, and with no logical pattern that I can figure out. So I'm really not sure. Like, there are some times where we spend a lot of time on it, and, like, council members give a laundry list and go into a lot of detail and try to pers be persuasive. And there are other times where, like, we're basically, you know, Great. where that's not the read of the room and, like, it's not welcome to share thoughts. And I've seen people shut down. So I just don't – I'm not um, sure what the – what I think just managing expectations so that folks know – how to prepare, particularly for new council members, but really for everyone to really know, like, is this the opportunity to, you know, bring forth a laundry list of things we might look at? Is this the opportunity to maybe each pick one or two things we want to talk about for five minutes? I think just some sort of management of expectations so that folks can adequately prepare, I think, would be really helpful around the council potpourri. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good feedback. Anyone else? Councilmember Pascal. Thank you. Um, just a couple things to think about. Uh, just reactions from the list. Uh, the, the, the regional fire, fire authority, um, I'm just wondering if that's, that needs to be a retreat topic or that could be a topic for a, a study session or, or something else. I just, the retreat topics, I want to talk about stuff that, where we can have like a, a discussion because it's not often that we can kind of have a collaborative discussion and if that's not something like that and it's more informational, then I would just uh, think about that um, to, to gain more time on other things. On the council procedures, <clears throat> are you going to poll us on some procedural things that maybe we're interested in or is it just kind of show up when you talk about whatever or? Yeah, no, I just wanted to throw that out as like that's what the concept is. And so I'd be asking in between now and the 20th, like, is there particular things, again, using the example of the study session? Yeah. but. If there's other things you want to be on that list that then is part of a facilitated discussion. Yeah, I have I have a couple ideas on that, so that would, I'd be interested in that. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you. I would concur with Councilmember Pascal that we will benefit from a chance to talk about fewer conversation or fewer topics uh, in depth and the the opportunity to talk about something informally is really valuable especially I think about what our next steps are around community pool responding to the survey results I would like to have the opportunity to speak about that amongst uh, all of you with in an informal setting and if there's other topics here that can be moved to a study session or deferred to any other kind of mini retreat, I'd rather have fewer topics that we can talk about in depth. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I just concur, and I really appreciate Councilmember Falcone's um, poking at the potpourri, because <laughs> I do have 
Toby's list of 41 things he wanted us to do. <laughs> and, and, he, and he might show up. <laughs> right. uh, okay, Councilmember Falcone, you had something else? Thank you, Vanderbilt. Yeah, I just want to um, put a plug in for, I know we've talked about this informally before, but just saying it, I guess, out loud, um, to think about maybe not for this retreat, maybe, but for future retreats, kind of the um, location and the environment um, that would really help facilitate um, team building in addition to um, having those less formal conversations, right? City Hall is a pretty formal place. Um, and so just wanted to mention um, my desire to be able to do something like that. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, uh, the mayor expressed the same um, idea and we have been looking for alternative locations which we're hoping to have a comment in a day or two about whether it could be somewhere else uh, so looking at like the Bellevue Botanical Gardens looking at Brightwater looking at other locations like that may not be able to pull it off but we are trying yeah. uh, Deputy Mayor did you or did you have anything else yes on the council potpourri one thing that we have done in the past it's had kind of uh, a facilitated type conversation about this where we put some ideas on on uh, whiteboard the dot voting and that identified some areas that were of interest as we look at um, a big budget year in 2025 and a new work plan it may be useful to go you know identify some of those the, those particular topics and you know while um, former council member Nixon had 41 great ideas there may be in there or amongst uh, the rest of us, some things that um, may be new things we want to um, uh, pursue um, for the 25-26 budget year. Thank you. I think that's all helpful. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Diana. Um, so the next slide is the Woodenville letter. <clears throat> so I did get some feedback from uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold with the modest uh, changes, which we thought were great. Uh, we're going to put up the letter here in a second and just want to get the council's, uh, this was the original that uh, Diane and I sent out and then the, the uh, edits that were suggested by Deputy Mayor Arnold uh, talk more about the connection and the economic opportunity and connecting tourism to the Totem Lake uh, Urban Center. And then since you all get a chance to vote on this, to have it be for the full Kirkland City Council, not just the mayor. So I want to see if there's any other edits. Otherwise, we're just looking for a motion to authorize us to have the mayor sign this letter. I'll make the motion. I actually have some edits. Oh, okay. We make the motion. And I apologize for not giving these sooner. And if council doesn't want to do these, we don't need to. Um, we talk about the rail corridor in the first paragraph, the first or second paragraph, first sentence. And I feel like we should say, it says bicycle and pedestrian transportation all along the rail corridor. I feel like we should say former mm -hmm. rail corridor because that's not clear that it's no longer used by yeah. rail. The other comment I had is the last sentence says, regional trail connecting users across Kirkland and across the east side. If you don't live in King County, you don't know what the east side is. So. I thought perhaps we could define it as cities located in East King County. Because this is going to the secretary, and I don't think he knows. <laughs> the east side is Boston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those were my two suggestions. Hearing no objections to those. 
No objection. Uh, I'd make a motion to draft and send the letter as drafted. Second. And Move. remove the word draft. One. Go ahead, Deputy. Uh, one housekeeping issue. We should spell Kirkland correctly yeah. in the third paragraph, please. Notice that as well. <laughs> Oops. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I just have one comment. I don't know that I, I don't have a proposed wordsmith, you know, option for us here. But we talk about bicycle and pedestrian. We don't talk about otherwise rolling. Um, so we don't talk about those who use rolling aid devices for their disability. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. And as we have these conversations, I would just like that to be included in the language. Thank you. I think we can add that as well. Okay. So it has been moved by Councilmember Tim Chisholm, second by Councilmember Black, to accept the letter as currently edited tonight. Um, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Anyone opposed? Motion carries 7-0. Thank you. Then my final issue is the calendar update. So um, I'm going to suggest... With the memo that you received on the debt service, I wouldn't reschedule a debt service presentation because you're going to get a formal first reading of the actual proposed debt. Um, but I do want to make sure we capture the AED and the obviously the executive session. Is there any other council member calendar items? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> council member sweet. <laughs> She's coming down. Yeah. To the, Three minutes. Our presentation. Okay, where is it, you guys? The clock. Oh, my goodness. And uh, thank so you to Diana for unusual, to say the least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have a presentation <laughs> from Councilmember Sweet. It was already Sweet. done for me. There yeah, it is. Okay. Shared as well with the audience. Oh, isn't it shared? Okay. The, uh, request for a legislative request memo, I believe. This is an LRM. Mm -hmm. Okay, I believe we do need an awesome flag, particularly if we're going to be concentrating on things like an economic development. Um, and I love this. Kurt did this. Um, what we do have a flag laying on the floor in the council study, and that flag is a flag that we designed in about a five-minute meeting in 2012, so that Toby could walk with a flag in the AWC conference. That's right. Basically, this is what flag experts call a, a seal on a bed sheet. <laughs> Love that. So um, who cares about a stupid flag? You know, it presents ways for us to brand ourselves, ways for us to be really creative in terms of um, having a symbol that really speaks to what Kirkland is. These are a couple examples of, of cities that have changed their logos to something that just pops. And I think I'll send you all of this uh, this as soon as I'm done. Ashley, Kirk, can you send it to everybody right now? Make sure John gets on it. Anyway, so my request is to begin a process for an LRM, come back. would love to have deep community involvement in the process, cultural arts committee membership or appointed whatever but to come up with a process that, that we can get excited about doing something that says, we're cool, and, um, and we want you to think so too. This is consistent, I think, with the, uh, the community involvement that we want to do and sort of the building our relationship. And that is all. Okay. <clears throat> I'll take 
That, so, that um, folks was former mayor privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so and, that was, uh, and I see uh, future asphalt art uh, happening. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, uh, Councilmember Sweet, would you act make a motion? Actually, I will. Uh, I move uh, LRM on the create. Move an LRM for on the creation of a flag for the city of Kirkland. Second. Okay. It's been moved by Councilmember Sweet, second by Councilmember Falcone, uh, to move forward with the LRM on a new Kirkland city flag. Councilmember Black. This is a chance for discussion, yes? Sure. And questions? So um, definitely we'll be supporting uh, the preparation of LRM for the, uh, to examine uh, the adoption of a city flag. I think this is a wonderful idea. I did want to clarify that uh, with, I guess, city manager, I'm looking at you. Um, I really like the idea of a uh, blue ribbon commission. I don't know what we kind of call it. Um, sort of taking up this question um, and studying it, thinking about um, it's looking at it from all different angles, including you know what makes a great flag, what, what ideas for a great flag, uh, ideas for how to outreach to the community and solicit uh, you know group ideas from the, the wider community with, for ideas with flags, um, develop the criteria that we would use to decide which flag we're going to, and de decide the, you know, the, the placement, what, what would be the, you know, the, the, the rules governing when we would use the flag and where we would use it and all that kind of stuff. I asked, said all that in order to ask. Um, there will be an opportunity for us to have, in, given the limited scope of an LRM, there will be opportunity after staff prepares an LRM for us to discuss that kind of what kind of process we actually want to see for this. Right. Um, okay. Um, that I, I have sort of led uh, by indicating um, that's kind of the direction I see us going. Obviously, we don't have the LRM yet, um, but I'd like to kind of steer us in that. I guess, I guess to the extent that's relevant to the, the LRM that staff prepares, what it would mean to uh, facilitate a commission to look at this more closely, I think that should be part of the, the uh, LRM level analysis. And that would typically be what we do is say there's three or four ways that you could do this council and here's the resource that would be necessary for each of those options and then do you want to continue with the LRM and do you want to pick one of those options? So that would be one of them that we would Okay. Include. Perfect. I just wanted to. I, I just want to be clear about that, and you've answered my question, so thank you. Councilmember Sweet. Uh, well, I, when Kurt gets you the uh, email with the website, the website that he's created actually incorporates m multiple levels of review, incorporating mm -hmm. the commission, incorporating a pro a process that I hope staff will look at, um, and it also includes an amazing. TED Talk on flags and why they are meaningful to cities. So I, I highly recommend it. Councilmember Tim Chisholm. I think at some point it would be cool to have a design contest where our community members or residents would be able to submit a, a design. Just for information, the, uh, we did forward the link and the TED Talk and the a website that's been set up and the background to all of our directors and the city manager's office a couple weeks ago so everyone's had a chance to actually look at it so. <laughs> all right any other comments 
All right, questions on the motion to move forward with a city flag LRM. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Passes 7-0. Thank you. All right. There's no other calendar questions. Then I am finished, Madam Mayor. All right. Anything else from anyone? We are adjourned before 11 o'clock. Yay. <laughs>